You are now listening to the new voice of reason, Down the Middle, a political podcast with Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation, a podcast about politics, current events, and culture through a lens of moderation, measuredness, and common ground. So sit back and prepare yourself for two guys who prefer intermittent, moderate change over revolution. Two guys who believe diversity of thought is our greatest strength. Are you prepared? Okay, here are your hosts, Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer. All right, welcome to episode 25, one of my favorite titles, Rebel Without a Clause, a down-the-middle holiday special, Riz. How's it going, man? Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. It is episode 25, and Jay, I believe, if I remember correctly, when we were all the way back in episode 10, we were celebrating the milestone of 10, and yeah. we were like, well, we can't celebrate every 10, so what's the next milestone? And I believe you said it was 25. It's our silver anniversary already. Yes, so this is another milestone for us, and also, okay, so this is, this is kind of deep, but... I was uh, I was going through all of our episodes and sort of adding up the average of what uh, of the runtime of each episode and realizing yeah. that uh, after 25 episodes, we will have between 40 and 45 hours of content, uh, wow. including the 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 interviews we've done. Mm-hmm. And then and this is the deep part. I was thinking if you were to get in your car in L.A. tonight. And drive to New York straight yeah, to Manhattan, straight right? Straight uh-huh. through. Google Maps says that's about a 40-hour drive. So you wow. can listen. You could start at episode one and listen to just Riz and Justin for 40 straight hours. As you drive from one coastal elite city to the other coastal elite city. <laughs> exactly. You can listen to two coastal elites talk about politics. And I, I told my wife that. I was like, I, I was telling her about the hours and hours of content. I said you could get in your car and you could drive and 40 hours of content you could enjoy of me speaking and she goes that sounds terrible <laughs> <laughs> she gets that every day yeah, exactly. <laughs> 24 of them but if you are so inclined if you if you really love the podcast i suggest you get in your car tonight yeah, and put go. on episode one and go have you ever been to new york if you're if you're in la or vice versa if you're in new york listening to us yeah. come out to la it's sunny listen to us the entire way uh that's it anyway we say this every single week but this week we holy really <laughs> holy holy moly uh yeah we we uh we have quite the episode to get to i'm predicting three hours but the good thing is that you're gonna have two weeks to listen to this episode which i'll get to in a minute anyway let's quit wasting time jay and let's go right into honest apes when he growed up this tiny babe folks all called him honest abe abraham Okay, so uh, just a word about schedule here for a minute. This episode will be the last official Down the Middle episode of 2020. Next Thursday is Christmas Eve, of course, and the Thursday after that is New Year's Eve. Both of those occasions would be better spent with your family than listening to us talk. So uh, we will be back for the first episode of the new year, episode 26, on Thursday. January 7th, 2021. See you there. See you there. And that does it. That's our time. See you guys. (laughs) Uh, Next, we have been talking about our media venture that we're launching called The Intermediary. Uh, We're very excited about it, as a lot of you guys are as well. We've heard from a bunch of you wondering when the venture is officially launching. 
We did tell you end of the year, but that may be delayed for a week or two. The reason is, Jay, you only get one chance to make a first impression on the world. I've heard that. I've heard that. And, And that's especially true in the internet age where everything is written in ink. So anything you put on the internet, it's there forever. You can't, you, we have that way back machine. So even if you make a mistake, that mistake is there. Can't get rid of it. No one go look at my live journal from, you know, college <laughs> or whatever. Exactly. So because of this, we're taking the branding aspects very seriously. We want to make sure that we have the perfect branding materials like our logo in place. And we also want to make sure that we have enough material on the site to keep you guys occupied for a few weeks before we officially launch this. So yeah. we are just not 100% there yet, but it is coming. It's going to be rather awesome. We're going to work on it on the break. And uh, when we do officially launch, we'll give you guys a full synopsis of what the intermediary is going to be, what kind of journalism you can expect, and why we think it is of the utmost importance in this day and age. We'll probably do a full episode on it, maybe. So I'm sure we will. Going to be pretty cool. Okay, next, Jay, uh, for the last time this year, pitch our capitalist endeavors uh, for, before the holiday season officially begins. Okay, people. We're only going to tell you this once more this year. Christmas is right around the corner. There are some great sales on our gear happening right Mm. now. We know you want to create some moderate change, Mm. and you can do it with a sweatshirt or a mask or a mug, one for travel and one for home, of course. The links are up on our socials. Indoctrinate your friends in moderate values. Help save the world. Buy our mugs. Save the world. That should be another shirt. It should be, yeah. So yeah, uh, you and you might even still have time, depending on your location, before Christmas. It could be a good stocking stuffer. Yeah, right? it's a perfect yeah. stocking stuffer. Exactly. So uh, one last thing, Jay. Uh, tell our listeners about the ad program that we're launching. This is kind of interesting. Yeah, really excited about this. So we've been gearing up to run ads for some time now. But since you know the country is in the middle of an insane pandemic, we figured there might be a better way to kick our ad program off. So here's the deal. We're going to run free ads, free ads for small businesses and restaurants on our show from now through the end of the pandemic. So if you or someone you know has a small business or a restaurant that could benefit from some exposure on our show, reach out to them, tell them to reach out to us on social, on the Discord. You can email us at downthemiddlepodcastusa at gmail.com. That's downthemiddlepodcastusa at gmail.com. And we will run the ad for free. Yeah. Who doesn't like free, Jay? I love free. Yeah, so this is free advertising for your business or your family's business or your friend's business. It's a pretty cool idea. All right, uh, moving on. Again, we're not going to waste any time today. We are going into our favorite segment and your favorite segment. What is it, Jay? We care a lot. We do. We care a lot. Go. All right, Jay. So uh, we got a few questions this week. Uh, Why don't you kick it off with the first one? You got it. This is a private message that uh, surprisingly is for you, Riz. Oh, wow. What a surprise. Yeah, shock. Uh, So it is, Rob has said several times that corruption doesn't equal illegality. Shouldn't corruption in politics be illegal? Good question. Okay, yeah. And I think I've said corruption doesn't necessarily equal illegality but uh so here's the thing there are many different levels of corruption right so like for instance if you look up the word corruption in the dictionary it says uh dishonest or fraudulent conduct 
by those in power, typically involving bribery. That's sort of the Webster's definition. Now, fraud and bribery can be crimes in certain instances, which is why there are examples of corrupt behavior that has landed politicians in prison. Dishonesty, however, is not a crime. But, you know, one of the things that I think people dislike about politics to begin with, and this is certainly... Uh, you know, one of the main reasons I myself would never want to be a politician is that even in the most local of politics, the very act of running for public office is sort of a corrupting endeavor, mm-hmm. um, even if there's very good intentions that are involved. Like if if I wanted to run for a seat in the city council to represent even my small neighborhood, for instance, the very first thing I'd have to do is, of course, raise money. And the art of raising money is in and of itself a corrupt enterprise unless it's going to like a specific charity. People don't typically part with their hard-earned cash unless they think they're going to get something out of it. And in politics, that usually means some kind of policy that they support. So politicians are often put in the position of making promises to individuals or corporations or special interests in return for campaign donations. If you think about it, that is sort of the definition of corruption, right? But that's all a part of normal everyday global politics. So we don't really think about that as a bad thing. But this is why you have a lot of calls, especially from the far left to, quote, get money out of politics. You see that a lot. We need to get corporate money out of politics. You know, politics needs to be free, like everything on, on, on you know, the Bernie Sanders left, right? Yeah. Now, this, of course, is silly because campaigning for public office, especially at higher levels, could cost millions of dollars and somebody has to pay for that, right? So, you know, and, and, and I don't think the taxpayers want to foot the bill so that crap politicians can run around the country and push their agenda, right? No, thank so, you. Right, exactly. So, you know, I think at the beginning of, of the Trump era, sort of coming on, Trump sort of coming on the political scene, this was the reason a lot of people were intrigued by him. You heard a lot of folks saying that he was beholden to nobody, you know, no special interest, no outside political forces, because he was already a billionaire. Now, we come to find out that he's not only beholden financially to banks in other countries, but perhaps also has some personal skeletons in his closet that he doesn't want to come out and therefore is somewhat beholden to the keepers of those secrets, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we all have things we don't want the general public to know about us. And oftentimes keeping that information from becoming public becomes something corrupt for politicians. I mean, how many times have uh, sex scandals been covered up for political purposes? That's corruption, right? Now, you you know, Hillary Clinton was very ripe for corruption charges due to the fact that she and her husband, Bill, also no stranger to corruption in politics, Jay, uh, you know, have a foundation called the Clinton Foundation that took in donations from global influencers, if you will, during the time that Hillary Clinton was secretary of state. This is a corruption scheme that is often referred to as pay-to-play politics. The idea that foreign actors were attempting to curry favor inside the Obama administration by giving money to Hillary Clinton's foundation and sort of getting placed at the front of the line because of it. Now, this is also very common. It's been happening for for decades, right? Now, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. Republicans have never been able to prove that sort of nefarious intention because if they were... That would be an example of corruption that could actually be illegal. Uh, selling American foreign influence is indeed a crime. But yeah. the the charges that we're hearing right now about Joe Biden, for instance, that his family members were sort of trading off his name and landing these high paying positions on boards of uh, global corporations while Joe kind of looked the other way and didn't say anything. If those end up being true, that is an example of corruption that isn't illegal. 
Some might say it's unethical, but not necessarily illegal. People trade on each other's names all the time. It's nepotism, essentially. Nepotism, yeah. Is is it right in the circumstance? No, morally. Uh, But does it happen often? Yeah. Especially happens in politics, and it especially happens when people have been in politics for a very, very long time. Absolutely. You know, the name Biden means something. He's been around for a long time, and and his family members are going to use that name to their advantage just in the same way we all probably would do the same thing. Come on, you know, the the Bush family is no different. I mean, this Uh, happens often. Happens often. Clintons are, of course, Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Chelsea Clinton. You know, she's she's gotten where the job she's gotten in her life, not because she's not worthy of them, but probably because her last name is Clinton. Right. So the bottom line is that there are many shades of gray when we're talking about corruption. As far as the second part of the question goes, shouldn't corruption in politics be illegal? Uh, There have been many attempts from both sides of the of the aisle throughout American history to sort of crack down on it more in politics. But because of the fact that there are shades of gray, as I just mentioned, I don't know if you could sort of blanketly eliminate all instances of corruption by, quote, making it illegal. So that's where I stand on that. Uh, Jay, anything to add? No, it's great. I think like anything else we talk about here, it's nuanced and you can't blanket it with a statement of all corruption should be illegal. It's just you miss a lot of those shades of gray you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next, uh, for this segment, we have a down the middle first, Jay. Did you know that? Uh, I didn't. What's the first? Okay. So normally when friends of the pod reach out to us to let us know that we got something wrong, it's typically d- directed at me as, yeah. as, well, you, as you guys you know. know you do right? say more things. <laughs> yes, I say more things for sure. So, uh, however, a good friend of the pod who will remain nameless for purposes of this exercise reached out to me last week and told me that Jay, in this friend of the pod's opinion, got wow. something glaringly incorrect in okay. episode 23. So I get to know who it is later? Maybe. Episode 23, which was, which was titled So Electorally Collegial, which I love that title. I apparently just glossed over it and didn't provide any appropriate pushback, according to this friend of the pod. Now, this friend of the pod who alerted me to this wasn't sure if my lack of pushback was an overt attempt to be bipartisan and down the middle, or if it was just something I missed or I was being lazy or whatever. But first, let me quickly go through the process of how we structure and create our episodes every week on the show, because I think you guys might find this interesting. So... Jay and I make a shareable Google Doc, usually uh, over the weekend, where we outline the topics we want to highlight for the next episode. We name the episode. We come up with the topic of the day up until we actually tape the episode. We spend the next few days adding things, subtracting things, amending things as the news cycle changes and other Mm -hmm. political events happen. But we are very careful about not disclosing our individual opinions on the topic at hand to each other before we actually tape the show. And what this does is it obviously makes the show less contrived because we're reacting to each other's opinions in real time. But it also forces us to often have to come up with rebuttals or agreement points on the spot, which is, right. which to me is kind of the essence of engaging political banter, right? It's mm-hmm. improvisation, right? 100%. So, so, but with that, while we're listening to each other speak, sometimes we're simultaneously looking at the outline and thinking about what's happening next and not giving 100% of our attention to what each of us may be saying at the time. A lot of times I'll listen to a podcast and be like, I don't remember saying that. And I don't remember <laughs> Jay saying that, right? Yeah. So, so when I went back and listened to this section that I was alerted, 
reverted to, I realized that this was probably one of those times for me where I wasn't completely on the ball. So Mm -hmm. uh, for the first time ever on the show, in order to correct the record for myself, we're going to play a clip of something Justin said a few weeks ago. We finally got here. (laughs) We're finally playing ourselves on the podcast. We're playing ourselves, yes. (laughs) I'm going to give a proper rebuttal to it. Jay, go. We give credit where credit is due on this podcast, and we don't give President Trump a lot of credit. And he's bungled so much of this pandemic response, and we've gotten into it on countless occasions. So with that being said, I think Operation Warp Speed, which is a Trump administration program to engage and fund the private sector to speed up the discovery of a vaccine, I dare say one he was far more involved in than the Israel Accords, you know, that we've praised him for, is, is so far, in my opinion, a massive success. It's netted at least one vaccine in less than a year by a company called Moderna. And I don't believe that Pfizer was involved in the program, but a vaccine that seems to be incredibly effective and much easier to transport and store than the Pfizer vaccine, which requires a very specific cold storage. This is because of the president's belief in our private sector and in capitalism to innovate. So let's everyone say it with me. Yay, capitalism. Okay. So first off, Jay, I sound as, great. First, yeah, off. you do. You sound great. Your voice, you. Uh, you have very thin larynx. I could, I could tell. Yeah, <laughs> <Is> that <a laughs> thing? no, I don't know if that's a thing, but it is now. <laughs> so first off, Jay, as you noted, the vaccine that's actually shipping around the country right now is the Pfizer vaccine, yes. which had nothing to do with Operation Warp Speed, mm-hmm. right? All right, we could agree on that. I noted that so, in my thing. One, right. one yeah, of you the did, vaccines. You did. That's why I said, as you noted, okay. Yep. So presumably, though, this vaccine would have come to market in the same exact way it is right now, without any government program being initiated, right? Mm-hmm. Now, secondly, Operation Warp Speed was very much the Trump administration trying to put a Band-Aid over cancer. Now, we have the tapes, and we've gone over this before, but we have the tapes of Trump admitting in January, before any of us even knew the word coronavirus, that this thing was bad, and it was spreading, and it was killing young people and old people, and that he purposely downplayed it in order to not incite panic. He says it on tape. That was in January. Operation Warp Speed, for all of you out there, was launched on May 15th. That's four months after we know Trump knew of the severity of this thing. Imagine what could have happened if he had engaged the private sector in you know, early February even. The point is that we know that his first political agenda was to deny this whole thing was happening at all to plant the seeds that it was a liberal hoax. And when it became obvious that the was about to hit the fan and the building was already burning down, then he pulled the fire alarm and engaged the private sector. And does that sound heroic to you, Jay? Let me just ask that. Uh, I don't think anything about this is heroic. Right. Uh, for sure. And look, if he had engaged the private sector in February, as we know, as you stated, mm-hmm. with the Pfizer vaccine, we'd still have it now. So my only point in saying that is that if there's anything that Trump has been adept at, possibly the only thing, yeah. it's been calling together the executives from any given sector. He's done this a couple of times with different industries and putting their heads together in the same room. Getting it off the government's shoulders and putting it on the private sector because he doesn't want to deal with it, which is which is more effective for sure. It's more effective. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. honestly, like if yeah. if I had my my druthers with uh, any any problem in our country, it would be for the private sector to handle it, not our government, because our government's slow, they waste money, and they don't get the problem solved well. Right. Government sucks at everything, is what you're... Government sucks at everything, exactly. So my only point in saying that was that Trump does do this well. I wish more presidents had done it. I hope more presidents do it. That if we have a problem in this country, 
And whether it's for it was for his own gain or not, it's it's always been to solve a problem like the vaccine. I'm just into that thought process. I think that harnessing the private sector to fix problems that require innovative solutions is American. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly American. Like I said, throwing money at government agencies to do the same thing will yield more expensive, slower results. So the only okay. thing I was praising is Trump's ability to put a number of people in a room to fix a problem from the private sector and make that something that our country is known for. I'm down with that. The thing is that this idea that Trump is pitching, we hear him say this a lot, that if anyone else, I, yeah, I'm working on my Trump impression, by the way, if anyone else was president, it would have taken years to get so the much vaccine. better. Yeah, it's better. It's, I'm getting better. it's softer. Yeah, yeah. He's not like the, yeah. the, 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 you know, Brooklyn Dodger guy. anymore. <laughs> exactly. So, so the idea that he's pitching that, you know, if, if, if Barack Obama had been in office or if Hillary Clinton or if Joe Biden, you know, he, I think he said like, if Joe Biden was in office, it would have taken seven years to get the vaccine. Like what's the evidence for that? Right. Of course. Now, uh, like it's ridiculous. where, where's the evidence that Hillary Clinton would have suggested to slow walk the whole thing and take our time. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. and on that. Okay. So I have to pick a bone with the last thing you say in the clip, which is that mm-hmm. due to Trump's faith in the private sector and capitalism to innovate, you know, this got done. And I understand what you just said. You sort of, double down on that, that he has been good at that. But, mm-hmm. and, and I'll agree that the private sector is better than, than a government agency at solving problems always. Right. But it's giving Trump himself all sorts of credit that he likely doesn't deserve because the reality is that you and I both know, here's what happened. Trump got his team in the room and said, I want to create the fastest vaccine in human history. Make it happen. Yeah, that, That's so good. That, you, you, you do it's this to yourself with, with yourself in the mirror because it's, no, it's no, really just, good. I'm getting better. You put some it, work right? in. I got to do it again, right? So right. Trump got in his room with his team. There was a big meeting and he sat down at the table and said, I want to create the fastest vaccine in human history. Make it happen. Right. And the, the, the insinuation that somebody like Barack Obama wouldn't have been able to come up with that brilliant idea is just silly. Don't you think? I mean, my six year old thinks like this, like we should have candy for every meal. Like the adult version of that is let's cure this disease faster than ever thought possible. Like, oh, wow. While, while, while we're at it, why don't we eliminate all war and poverty around the world as well? <laughs> let's just say it. It'll happen. I, I agree with you. It's not a new concept. But what Trump did that is different than any president before him mm-hmm. that I can see is that it, it's the optics of the thing. He put these people in a room. He puts them in front of the, pr- the microphone. He puts them in front of the press. And he says, we're the greatest country in the world. We have the best solutions in the world. Mm-hmm. And we have the best minds to do it. And here they are. And again, like, I'm all about that the line of thinking. Right. Well, you know, it's like I've been saying this for years. Being a Republican politician has to be easier than being a Democrat because you could just you could stand by the mantra that government sucks at everything and just pawn it off to somebody else. My uh, wonderful mentor, Ron Fair, used to say, uh, work with existing materials. There you go. There you go. Okay. All right. We'll leave it at that. I think what what sort of set off our listener about this was your enthusiasm at the time about about the fact that Trump got this done. And when you really sort of look at the record and look at how much time passed between when he we know he knew about it and when he engaged, it very much is a bandaid over cancer. It's him saying, oh, shit, like we, we need to get our, our our stuff together here completely and that was my point in saying he's bungled at pretty much every other aspect of the coronavirus uh, issue but you know like we saw with the pfizer vaccine i'm sure pfizer started immediately as soon as we heard this and we have it at the same time as moderna so it just tells you i don't know how much difference it would have made in the vaccine it would have been nice for him to spring into action sooner but Mm -hmm. that's a completely separate issue you're right okay now and with all that said it is a good time 
since we're talking about the COVID vaccine, to reflect mm-hmm. on the fact that getting a vaccine this quickly for such a horrible disease is yeah. a medical miracle and Amen. a true reflection of the advancements made in modern medicine that have that have allowed us all to live longer and healthier. Like, I mean, there will be books written about the endeavor to wipe this disease out faster than ever before in history. Yeah. Like, there will be books about that for and documentaries for ages. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they'll probably be... A hundred years from now, they'll be talking about this. It's incredible. Yeah, they'll say thing. America discovered the vaccine, and they were the third country to get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, somebody said the other day, uh, some pundit said that this past week could be one of the most pivotal in American history because we got closure on two big things. Mm-hmm. One is the direction this country is going to move in with, uh, politically with the electoral college voting for Joe Biden. Some people may not think that's so significant. You know, since we do it every four years, but due to the truly unconventional nature of Trump and his presidency, it is a very important development. And we're going to get to the Electoral College vote in a little bit. Uh, But two is the knowledge that this pandemic will come to an end in the matter of months, something that we were all unsure about just six months when we started this podcast. We didn't even know that. Absolutely. So it was an incredible week in American history. Uh, I think it's it's a good time to remind people about that. Jay, anything else you want to add about that? No, I completely agree with you wholeheartedly there. I think it, it was a very big week historically, not just for us in this moment in time. Right. Now, of course, Jay, I wouldn't be myself if I didn't add in something cynical about politics on the topic as well, would I? Go on. So, uh, yeah, uh, the right-wing media has a serious dilemma on their hands here because so much of right-wing politics has been moving in the direction of anti-establishment and anti-elitism, which, of Mm -hmm. course, thrives on conspiracy theories, as we talked about last week. Now, the right has to keep conspiracies alive to sort of separate the supposed sheep from the people, quote, in the know, you know? So the dilemma is this. They want to give Trump all the credit in the world for delivering the vaccine in record time. Yeah. You know, all the right-wing pundits have been pointing out all week that doctors and scientists on CNN and other mainstream networks were saying that it would be almost impossible to have a vaccine before the end of the year. And, you know, they keep playing this clip of every, every doctor on CNN for the last year saying, like, the end of the year would be really, really tricky. He'd need a miracle, right? And this sort of furthers that anti-establishment and anti-elitist agenda on the right because it creates the narrative that Trump is smarter and more knowing than top scientists and medical officials, right, than the elites in this society. Yeah, he's always right about everything. He's always correct. But literally on the same show where Laura Ingram is singing Trump's praises for getting the vaccine when nobody thought it was possible on the same damn show. She's having quack doctors on who are no short supply in this country Mm -hmm. to talk about how the vaccine is a globalist attempt to track us and experiment with gene mutation and some such nonsense. Before this show, Jay, I was watching Tucker Carlson today, tonight, doing the same exact thing. You know, there's so much demonization of Bill Gates and, uh, you know, know, on the right, it's it's completely blown up. And I'm not making that up. Like, Fox News is airing shows on all their primetime about how, you know, with all these conspiracies, anti-vax conspiracies. So, you know, several shows on Fox News had anti-vax doctors on talking about the dangers of vaccines. So, you know, how do you simultaneously give credit to Trump for creating the fastest vaccine ever while also casting doubt on the legitimacy and healthfulness of the vaccine? That's the question. But this is where it's going, Jay, and I'm going to make a prediction right here. 
Okay. And and I must add that our editor-in-chief and friend of the pod, Clay Cogman, had made this prediction to me. This is his material. He had made this this prediction to me months ago uh, when we were having a conversation. And I think he's exactly correct. You know, he said something along the lines of the one road the right hasn't gone down yet is the mm-hmm. anti-vax road. You know, anti-vax sure. has been one of the few primarily rich, white, Democrat conspiracies that has remained pervasive throughout wealthy areas of the country. I think a lot of it has to do with a lot of celebrities that started saying vaccines caused autism and it really yeah. took hold. Brentwood, California, we're yes. looking at you. Rich communities is where yeah. it has taken hold. In LA, there are special private schools that cost 40 grand a year where kids are not required to have vaccination records and very few kids are vaccinated. When you see protests in LA to stop vaccination requirements, it's never in the Hispanic communities in East LA. It's in Brentwood. It's in Beverly Hills where the white liberals are. But, you know, now that there's going to be such a push from the intelligentsia and medical communities, which have been Mm -hmm. demonized by the right for the last four years, you know, to get this vaccine, there is going to be a political incentive on the right to push for people being able to exercise their freedoms and not get vaccinated. It's another switcheroo. Exactly. I, I think this issue is is going to be litigated by the right wing press for the next four years. And I would not be surprised if whoever the Republican candidate is in 2024, mm-hmm. they run on a platform that includes freedom to not vaccinate your kids. And I actually have very libertarian opinions on this subject, mm-hmm. but we're going to save that conversation for next year because it's like a full episode. So and next year when that happens and smallpox comes back, we can, yeah. we can have that conversation then. <laughs> exactly. And measles and mumps and rubella yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. The biggest and most entertaining dilemma to me to watch has been the, the administ- actual administration themselves, because you saw Trump push back against the story that he and his administration were actually going to get the vaccine as part of a program to ensure yeah. governmental continuation. Did you see this? I did see that. Yeah. And he responded yeah. I mean, he's not responding to anything right now. He responded right. so fast yeah. and he had the ultimate out, right? It didn't require him to point blank say, I'm not going to get the vaccine and neither should you. He just said, oh, we'll get it later. We'll get it later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was, it, they tried to corner him. It was really kind of brilliant. Right. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a Trumpian world out there, Jay. It's a Trumpian world. Yeah. So moving on. Uh, finally, we got one more question, didn't we? We got one more question. So the question from the listener is do all conservatives have to be Republicans and do all liberals have to be Democrats? Very good question. I'm excited about this question. So this question was very timely because it's something that Justin and I have been talking about privately and considering. You know, when we first started this podcast, which was way back in May, seven months ago, Jay, can you believe that? It feels like seven years ago. Seriously, yeah. It feels like seven decades ago. But uh, we were sort of billing ourselves, if you remember, as a moderate Republican and a moderate Democrat get together and talk about the glories of moderation. And uh, we definitely still both believe in moderation as the best political solution for the nation. But I know that doing this podcast has been probably above all else, a learning experience for us, right? And in doing the research and forming our individual opinions for the show, we've learned a lot about our own ideologies. And I think we've both realized how we've essentially lost a deeper connection with the political parties we were originally aligned with. Yeah, like in real time, we saw it. In real time, right. Republicanism 
and Trumpism are synonymous at this point. So I know Jay feels like a man without a country. And I've been moving away from the Democratic Party and where they are today, uh, both in terms of role of government and more so on the cultural front for a while now as well. You know, they lost me at the Canty Clause, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, once Nancy Pelosi put on that Canty Cloth and started bowing and then couldn't get up because she was too old, that's when I was like, I'm turning in my Democratic. I'm not, I'm not, I'm done. freaking Canty (laughs) Cloth. But at the same time, I know that Jay still feels like a conservative and I still feel like a liberal. And that's why I've said this on the show and I've said it privately to Jay. I think we should stop referring to ourselves as a Republican and a Democrat and instead use the term conservative and liberal respectively uh, because those terms more accurately describe what our political and social ideologies are. And then uh, in terms of the term moderate, Uh, I have some issues with that as well, because I think we can still be in favor of moderation in our politics. And that's why I still stand by our slogan being, you know, moderate change done incrementally or some version Mm -hmm. of that. And Mm -hmm. I still think that down the middle is an appropriate name for this show. But in getting to know Justin's ideology a little more, I don't consider him a moderate conservative anymore, because if he's moderate, who's really conservative? Is it the Trump person who we've been told the Trump people are super conservative who believe in government intervention into the economy and like starting trade wars? Is right. is that really conservative now, even though it has more in common with aspects of, you know, liberal economic policies than it does classically conservative ones? Mm-hmm. Jay is just a conservative. At the same time, if I'm moderately liberal, who's very liberal? Because I've already made the distinction on this show many times between liberalism and leftism. So I don't think of the Marxist AOC Bernie Sanders people as liberals. There is nothing liberal about identity politics and seeing people as a group to which they belong rather than the individual that they are. So I don't think of people who want to shut down conservative points of view Uh, and eliminate certain ideas from college campuses as liberals. So why am I considering myself a moderate liberal when in reality I'm supporting ideas that have classically been supported by liberal individuals throughout the West for a hundred years? Why do I have to be the, the, you know, outside the Overton window just because an element of the Democratic Party has moved further left? So my view on, on this is that, yes, you can very much be a conservative and be completely un affiliated with the Republican Party, just as you could be a liberal and want nothing to do with the Democratic Party. And in fact, I think I speak for both Jay and me when I say that we both fall into that category. Jay, what do you want to add? I completely agree. And Mm -hmm. you make incredible points here. Although taking yourself out of the system is a dangerous thing, in my opinion. I have some fear there. We have a two-party system. And the way things currently stand is that your voice is only really heard if you align yourself with one of those two parties. So with that in mind, no matter the terms we use, and I'm perfectly happy calling myself a conservative, I think you make a perfect point there. Um, But I'm going to continue to fight for the Republican Party that should be, and part of that is this show. And I think it's the same for you in a way. But like I said, I do agree with what I am at the moment is not at all in line with the Republican base, which is just like far too Trumpy. Right. You know, listen, I'm I'm probably going to continue to vote more for Democratic politicians, and you're probably going to continue yeah. to vote more for Republican politicians, unless, and I'm going to get to a whole thing on this later, but maybe those things are going to shift one of sure. these days. So mm-hmm. we just we just don't know how that's going to work out. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, I'm just, from now on, I'm calling myself a liberal. I, I, I've already uh, registered, re-registered as an independent. But yes, to answer your question, you absolutely can be a conservative 
and uh, not be a Republican. Those things yep. are are mutually exclusive, right? Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, we got one more question, and we're not going to answer it today. It's mm-hmm. just for you, the listener, to think about. And we'd love to hear from you if you have an answer, you have an opinion on the question before, and you want to answer before the new year in our next episode. You know, yeah. we'll check that out, and we'll read them on the air, and we'll see if we agree or we don't agree. Yeah, it's a great uh, question with a lot of nuance, and the only reason we're not doing it today is we have so much more to get to, and uh, we want to we wanna come up with, with the best answers we possibly can, so it would be good to do that over the break and come back fresh uh, in, in January. Exactly. So this one is from Hot Tub Lover 86 which is mm-hmm. a very weird name. I guess they love weird hot name. tubs. It's odd. Uh, but the question is thus. Uh, one aspect you guys touched on too briefly last week on the subject of globalization and the current disdain for it on the far right and far left is the factor of political power and money given to economies and nations who rampantly commit human rights, climate, political violations outside the U.S., specifically countries like China, which already holds most of the U.S. debt and has eroded American industries and factories by offering cheaper labor, some of which includes child workers. So what do you say to people who are pro-American jobs and anti-free-for-all globalization for those reasons? Should there be limits on globalization for political or humanitarian reasons? Great question. I'm looking forward to tackling that. Yeah, in our next that'll episode. be a good one. Yeah. Thank you. So thank you all for contributing to We Care A Lot, the final one of 2020. Let's move on to a segment we come back to often and uh, get into some of the news of the week. So pick up your remote and turn on the news. Jay, uh, as you may have heard by now, the Electoral College voted for Joe Biden, making him the uh, the official president elect. So, Jay, uh, tell us a little bit about that and uh, about what could and I stress could happen on January 6th if the Republicans go absolutely bad crazy absolutely so the top news story this week takes us well all over the country really as the electoral college made the biden presidency official on monday with a solid 306 electoral votes to president trump's perfect 232 the vote was business as usual as no faithless electors or surprises came up as the day wore on and the votes were tallied as president-elect biden made a speech to close out the night The only official news from the White House was the departure of Attorney General William Barr, who is set to leave the administration prior to the Christmas holiday. Now, the Electoral College vote is not the final word on the presidency. There is one more step taken by Congress on January 6th, as you mentioned, Riz. And while in the past this has been a rubber stamp, there's a very slight chance that it won't be as simple this time around. This congressional count is the final step in any presidential election. It's required by the Constitution, and it includes very specific steps. First, a joint session is held, and the sealed certificates containing a record of the electoral votes are brought into the chamber in mahogany boxes. Very nice. Bipartisan representatives of both chambers read the results out loud and do an official count. The president of the Senate, who at this moment, tough for him, is VP Mike Pence, presides over the session and declares a winner. If the VP can't preside, as you know, who knows for what reason, maybe he's sick, maybe he's got the coronavirus, the Senate pro tem is next on the list or the longest-serving senator in the majority party, who would be Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, after the results are read from each state. 
Any member can stand up and object to that state's vote on any grounds. However, the presiding officer will not hear the objection unless it's in writing and signed by both a member of the House and a member of the Senate. Now, if this joint request occurs, the joint session is halted and separate sessions of the Senate and House occur to consider the objection. For the objection to be sustained, both chambers must agree to it by a simple majority vote. If they do not both agree, the original electoral votes are counted. This type of objection has happened twice in history. Mm. The last time was in 2005, when two Democrats, Stephanie Tubbs-Jones and uh, Barbara Boxer, remember Barbara Boxer? I do. uh, Objected to Ohio's electoral votes, claiming voting irregularities. Both chambers debated the objection and rejected it, ultimately. Now, on a GOP caucus call on Tuesday, Mitch McConnell asked the caucus to not join in any House objection, warning that the rest of the caucus would have to vote it down. Mm. But it's unclear if any have considered in participating. In 2001, then-Vice President Al Gore actually had to preside over the counting of the votes for the 2000 presidential election he lost in. Talk about awkward. He gaveled several Democrats' objections out of order before he announced President George W. Bush the winner. Now, Biden did the same thing in 2016, shooting down objections from House Democrats that didn't have any Senate support. So we'll see what happens with Vice President Pence. Uh, This session of Congress will be the last stop for objections beyond any outstanding court cases. So you're saying I have a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Jay, so there's a very little chance that Biden doesn't end up president, right? There's very, very, very little chance. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell has now obviously... Yeah, uh, no hanky calling him pres- Yeah, he's congratulated <laughs> him. He called him president-elect, and he's yep. now told his caucus, "Stop screwing around. We're we're getting this done." Yeah, some of the Trumpier members of the House are very upset at Mitch McConnell for that cocaine, Mitch, as I call him. No one cares if yeah. they're upset. <laughs> exactly. So next, uh, so the Supreme Court rejected this week uh, what was probably Trump's last-ditch effort to steal this election. Uh, we talked a little last week about the case that the uh, the state of Texas was bringing in mm-hmm. trying to sue other states, and we talked about how dangerous that could be. Uh, Jay, tell us a little bit more about the case and how the high court ruled. You got it. Before we even get into the United States Supreme Court, it's important to note this past Monday that the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled against yet another Trump lawsuit seeking to throw out ballots in Dane and Milwaukee counties, both Democrat, as you could guess. Uh, This marks the third time in December alone that the Wisconsin Supreme Court has ruled against the Trump campaign. So, like we said, even more significant was this ruling made one week ago where the United States Supreme Court rejected the lawsuit we've discussed on this podcast, filed by Texas seeking to invalidate 10 million votes in four battleground states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin. 17 other states filed briefs backing the case, and 120 House Republicans and Trump himself obviously backed the suit. This is the most significant legal defeat for the Trump campaign. The decision by the court reads as follows. The state of Texas's motion for leave to file a bill of complaint is denied for lack of standing under Article 3 of the Constitution. Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. All other pending motions are dismissed as moot. Statement of Justice Alito, with whom Justice Thomas joins, In my view, we do not have discretion to deny the filing of a bill of complaint in a case that falls within our original jurisdiction. See Arizona v. California from February 24th, 2020. And Justice Thomas did dissent only to say, I would therefore grant the motion to file the bill of complaint, but would not grant other relief. And I express no other view on any other issue. So the Texas GOP chairman issued a response to the court's decision, actually suggesting 
secession, Riz, I'm guessing you have a thing or two to say about that. There's some stuff I want to say that relates to that first. Okay. Before we even get there, though, uh, it's not working for Trump. It's not working at all. Right? It's, it, this is over. I mean, yeah, this is the it, only person who can't over. read the writing on the wall is him and the other people who like want a job in whatever he does next. Right. Yeah. You know, and I have to say there's there's sort of two reasons on the right that people can't believe that that Biden won that. I, and I just think it's funny because the first reason is that you hear people saying all the time. And I have a lot of friends who are on the right on social media. So I hear this all the time. Like, have you seen Biden's uh, rallies? There was like seven people there. It's statistically impossible. Right? Well, this so is there's the a, dumbest it, argument it, ever it, in the world. Well, it, here's why it's incredibly dumb. Okay. I've sort of thought this through because I'm, I'm surprised you even at, had there, to. There's, there's this meme going around in right wing mm-hmm. circles that shows three pictures. And the first picture is of a Trump rally and there's tens of thousands of people. The second picture is of, of an Obama rally, and there's tens of thousands of people, although mm-hmm. a little less than Trump, because Trump had to be a little bit better than Obama. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a Biden rally, and there's like seven cars and like 15 <laughs> older, like elderly people wearing masks. Yeah, and, uh, very and then socially it sa- distanced. Right, very socially distanced, and it says under it, statistically impossible for Biden to win. And oh it, supposedly, the, the proof is in the pudding, is in, you know, the proof is in the, the pictures. Jay, do you know what I'd rather do than go to a, a Joe Biden rally? Anything else? Go to the dentist. <laughs> I'd be, it sounds like the worst Saturday night ever yeah. to listen to like a near octogenarian talk about the soul of the nation. Mm-hmm. Like, and this right wingers can't like Trumpers, they can't wrap their head around this. They they like literally lose their mind that People don't vote like this. All right. Well, even more, <laughs> even more than that, there were only a limited number of people allowed into the Biden rallies because they were right. being so careful and so safe. Okay. It wasn't a free-for-all like the Trump rallies. Of course. But even if there – let's say there was no pandemic, okay? Yeah, right. Even so, I wouldn't go to a Biden rally. Right. It sounds terrible. Like, I agree. I wouldn't give up one of my nights where I could be in my bed with my wife watching – uh, you know, anything, literally anything, the undoing on HBO max, which is what we're currently watching, which is pretty okay. riveting by the way, to go watch an octogenarian or a near octogenarian speak. Like it sounds terrible. Why yeah. would I want to do that? And again, the Trumpers, they have become so wrapped up in the entertainment factor of Trump that they can't yeah. wrap their head around this, that people would vote for somebody. You know, I voted for Joe Biden proudly because he wasn't Trump. <laughs> that's that's basically it like yeah. and i have no problems with joe biden i think he's going to do a great job but the idea that there has to be this intense passion that you would waste your saturday night going to a political rally it, it's it's hilarious to me but secondly you hear on the tv the the uh the pundits and a lot of the sort of house member you know trump caucus in the house members are on you know they they set up pup tets at at, at fox news and they're on all the time and they're talking about how well you know, 60 million people in the country believe there was something fishy going on with this election. And so we need to investigate it. And I'm like, it's because you've been telling them that. <laughs> like, what the hell? What kind of excuse is that? You you have been saying that. Yeah. You've been saying that this election was rigged and stolen. So what are they supposed to believe? Like, And, and then they use their own constituents' beliefs to justify it's a, it's why... It's literally an, an echo chamber. It, it's, it's just absolutely crazy. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, we're moving on. Hopefully, we'll never have to talk about this again because uh, by the time uh, we come back, well, Joe Biden won't officially be in office, but hopefully it will be even more clear than it is today that he is the president-elect and will be the next president. Yeah. Okay. 
Moving on, um, Rush Limbaugh, the godfather of uh, conservative talk radio, and in fact, kind of the godfather of political talk radio altogether, mm-hmm. made unbelievable waves this week when he suggested that, as Jay kind of alluded to before, that uh, secession was upon us and that our differences had our differences had become too severe to coexist in the same country together. Uh, you know, this coming from a guy who has over 15 million daily listeners someday, maybe that'll be us, Jay. You know, and, and he certainly has a lot of influence over the Republican Party. It's a yeah. pretty stunning thing to say. Uh, we'll get into that in a minute. But in case you missed it, here's Rush Limbaugh. This is what that sounded like. I've referenced this. I've alluded to this a couple of times because I've seen others allude to this. I actually think that we're trending toward secession. I see more and more people asking, what in the world do we have in common with the people who live in, say, New York? What is there that makes us believe that there is enough of us there to even have a chance at winning New York, especially if you're talking about votes? I see a lot of bloggers. I can't think of names right now. A lot of bloggers have written extensively about how distant and separated and how much more separated our culture is becoming politically and that it can't go on this way. There cannot be a peaceful coexistence of two completely different theories of life, theories of government, theories of how we manage our affairs. We can't be in this dire a conflict without something giving somewhere along the way. Uh, I I know that there is a sizable and growing sentiment for people who believe that that is where we're headed, whether we want to or not. I still haven't given up the idea that we are the majority and that all we have to do is find a way to unite and win. Jay, I'm going to go off a little bit on this. So uh, I want to break this down for a minute. Do you mind? I, I do not mind at all. Okay. Um, I mean, I figure let's just own it. It's going to be a crazy long episode. Why not? Sure, let's go. <laughs> so uh, Rush there starts off by saying that more and more people are saying, you know, uh, what do we have in common with people in New York, for instance? Now, here's the answer. You ready? Go ahead. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. If you live in rural Wyoming, you have absolutely nothing in common with people who live in midtown Manhattan. You never have. You never will. And the founders of this country knew that you never would. And I would expect Rush Limbaugh to know that, okay? And I sort of made this argument way, way back in one of our first interviews that we did with Professor Adam McLeod, if you remember, Mm -hmm. uh, when I said that the reality is, very ironically, I might add, because of how divided we feel today, the reality is that we actually have more in common today than we ever did before in history. Absolutely agree. in, In the 1950s, The differences between those who lived in one of the boroughs of Manhattan and those who lived in rural Montana were so unbelievably stark, they barely even spoke the same language, 
Okay, there were many rural communities all across the country that didn't even have running water until the 70s. Today, we have different values, of course, but we basically have more in common by virtue of this golden age of consumerism that we've talked about before that we're living in um, than we ever had before. And almost all of us have computers and phones and Internet and modern appliances, even in Appalachia. And, you know, we have access to information that was unheard of just 40 years ago. And the irony and this, it's very ironic. The irony is that that very access to information has made us feel like we're more divided than ever because we're all screaming our opinions at the top of our lungs on social media all day and realizing, wow, those people in Mississippi sure do have different viewpoints than I do. Like we didn't know in 1980 that people in Mississippi had different viewpoints because we weren't exposed to it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I say that the founders knew this, I'm speaking about the very concept of federalism and states' rights, Jay. You know, because the founders knew that different areas of the country would have different priorities Mm -hmm. and values and economic opportunities, and that much of those differences would be based on geographical and even climatological natures of each state. Yet the state of Florida obviously has different economic opportunities than the state of Minnesota, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And those economic opportunities would influence certain cultural values in the community, and those cultural values would influence certain religious values in the community, and so on and so forth. This is why the founders set up a system whereby we were a nation of individual states each with their own individual priorities and identity. So I completely reject Limbaugh's notion that a permanent divorce is appropriate now because we've just become, you know, the idea that we become too different. Like, first, there's actually less, like I said before, that divides us than ever before. But more importantly, it was always those differences that were celebrated and used as an example of what makes America so great. I mean, we've all heard that sort of cliche term melting pot. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, well, like in Europe, generally, the the values of each nation are pretty consistent throughout society and throughout different levels of society, like generally. Right. But in America, the fact that our values are all radically different was the selling point and was our strength. So I think it's a BS cop out and pretty lame for someone who is as influential a thought leader as Rush Limbaugh uh, to say something like that. Honestly, I mean, Jay, what do you think? I think cop out's exactly the right word. It's yeah. media BS that is causing the divide for political gain. They're seeing what works with their base, and that is this kind of rhetoric. Right. It's this, uh, you know, screw them. We got our mm-hmm. own people. We got our own right. networks. We got our own high tops, and right. we'll go be conservative with our high tops, and the rest of them can <laughs> go burn. And, exactly. And, yeah. and, and that's a big problem. And if that's going to become a pervasive uh, issue, they're going to find themselves. It, it's just a short-term strategy. There's no real gain there. Right. You know, and then he says something about how conservatives will never have a chance of winning New York. Uh, so what's, you know, what the idea is like, what's there for us? You know, right. you're, you, you probably will never turn the state of New York red. And people with conservative values or people seeking a lifestyle that doesn't require them to pay like huge sums of their income and taxes mm-hmm. will continue to leave the state of New York. And my question is, what's wrong with that? Like, what's wrong with having states and cities that have their own identity or where like-minded individuals decide to to live together? I mean, again, 
this was already conceived by our founders. That's the amazing thing. They knew this. They knew this was happen. They, yeah. This was going to happen. They absolutely did. And finally, he says at the end of his statement that that the, the statement we just played that um, he still hasn't given up hope that we are the majority and that we just need to figure out how to win. That when he says we, he obviously means people with conservative values. Well. Here's the thing. I hate to tell you, Rush, but conservatives are not the majority in the country anymore. They're just not. If you look at the popular vote for the last few election cycles, people who identify just by the numbers, people who identify as liberals outweigh those who identify as conservatives in this country. But, and this is a huge but, Jay, that doesn't mean the Republicans won't continue to win elections. They're incredibly good at winning elections. I've said this before. They've won more elections in my lifetime than Democrats have, especially for a party that has bled support of mostly white college-educated people over the last 30 years. Republicans have still done pretty damn well because, again— the founders, in their infinite wisdom, knew that this would happen and knew that certain kinds of people would flock to major metropolitan areas of the country. And therefore, they devised the electoral college system so that those living in rural Arkansas wouldn't be completely dominated by those living in San Francisco. Yeah. But with all that said, I will say something that perhaps agrees a little more with Russia's theory here. Okay. What I want to say about that is that I think this has very little to do with public policy or role of government or tax rates or anything like that. As with everything today, this is about the culture war. It's the result of people in middle America with traditional values, you know, clinging to their God and their guns is about clinging to their God and their guns. I'm Barack Obama. And pretty good. Pretty good. Really good guns. Yeah, I'm getting better at that, <laughs> right? And they're reading about and watching television about the small segment of the population who thinks little kids should choose their own gender, or mm-hmm. that law enforcement is evil, or that all of our history should be torn down and replaced with sort of progressive icons, or that people can be uh, gender fluid. You know, it's why nine out of ten things that your wife, Jay post on her social media that could be labeled political mm-hmm. are cultural in nature sure. and not policy related or about economics. And she's not alone. Basically, all of the people I know who are on the right do that. Mm-hmm. They very rarely post policy things. It's always culture war elements. If you look at, at your wife's social media when she's posting something that could be, again, could be deemed political, mm-hmm. it's almost always something about the culture. Never about like specific governmental policies, right? And this is because the media she frequents has made the culture war the most pressing issue of conservative thought today. Oh, because the media they, in general has done that. Yeah, of course. It because sells, they, it, sell, it sells right. It's it it is what pushes their ratings forward. It's what gets yes. them eyeballs. But especially right-wing media, because they feel as though they are losing the culture war. They win elections over and over. And even in this 2020 election, they did very, very well, as we've talked about. But they're losing the culture war. And I've made this case repeatedly on the show, and I'll continue to make it. The radical left, the so-called radical left, that supports these ideas that make you feel uncomfortable or makes your wife feel uncomfortable or makes conservative America feel uncomfortable, make up an unbelievably small subset of the American left. But unfortunately, they are the subset that gets repeatedly amplified by the media. Yeah. And, and even more unfortunately, they are the subset that gets major corporations to cave to them mm-hmm. and cave to their demands. That's right. So it gives us this false sense that they're more powerful a force than they actually are. Yeah. And it's this very reason 
that I suspect is the main reason why we feel so divided today culturally, when in reality, we're actually not. And I want to play one more clip while we're talking about the culture war here. And this is from Ben Shapiro's show just yesterday. And he's talking about how the left is losing politically despite their dominance over American culture, which is true. And despite losing the presidency, the Republicans did very, very, very well in this, you know, if you look at the numbers. We'll see right? how the Senate goes, but yeah. We'll see, we'll see. Um, and Shapiro makes the point that if conservatives focus almost exclusively on the culture, imagine what can happen. Shapiro, go. Somebody asked me how I can remain optimistic in the face of the fact that Democrats have taken over so many of our major institutions and in the face of the Electoral College vote yesterday. Now, what I said is, I think the backlash is only beginning. I think that the Democrats have succeeded in taking over the highest levels of our institutions, from Hollywood to the media to social media. And I think that's a problem. The fact is, Republicans should hold the Senate. Republicans overperformed in the House. Republicans overperformed in state houses across the country, despite all of that. Imagine if Republicans were to actually fight back on the cultural level. Imagine if Republicans were to actually fight back against the institutional dominance of the left. The backlash is only beginning. The left is pushing too far. They're pushing too far. And this is the greater point, folks. The greater, the, the great lie of the 2016 election and of the Tea Party and Trumpism was that Americans were deeply concerned with the policies of the Obama administration, both domestic and foreign, right? The Tea Party was, was all about how we're spending too much money and we need a more conservative approach to economics, right? Bullshit. I'm calling bullshit. You're going to have to beep a lot there. <laughs> Donald Trump spent more money than any president in U.S. history, okay? It was never about policy. It certainly was never about conservative economic principle. It was about the culture and the ever-growing conservative sinking feeling that they had lost the culture war forever to Taylor Swift and Colin Kaepernick and Harry Styles and Whole Foods. Like, honestly, that's all that this is. And the secession talk is over culture, not over policy or role of government or the national deficit. And the case I would make is that the culture that you're supposedly fighting against as a conservative is a culture that aligns with an extraordinarily small percentage of people on the political left. And I would say the majority of left-leaning people who listen to this show probably fall into that category because I'm in that category. So, you know, it's the whole liberal against leftism thing. We don't subscribe to today's leftist orthodoxy and wokeism bullcrap. We subscribe to classically liberal values and ideas. Does that make sense, Jay? Makes perfect sense. And I think yeah. the, the unfortunate fact is that because the fight against those few people did so well for the Republican Party and the Republican yep. base and Donald mm -hmm. Trump yep. that that fight isn't going anywhere. So we're going to continue to hear that rallying against yep. the far left when the far left is is minimal. And mm -hmm. I, I agree that one day it could not be. But for now, yeah. it really is. And they're getting the most oxygen. We say this all the time. Yeah. And if the media could do better to focus on the issues at hand and the ideologies of each party, then we would actually have a fair fight. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this before on the show. I think when we were talking about that Trader Joe's controversy, remember they yeah. were going to rename all their things. Yeah. What we realized is that it was just like a couple hundred crazy people. Yeah. But these corporations and they didn't end up caving. But a lot of these a lot of these corporations do because 
they have been sort of conditioned to say, you know, it's all about profits for them. And if it's yeah. going to affect their profits, they don't want to deal with the problems. So it's just like, just give them what they want. And what I'm hoping is that that stops. Maybe the right does need to push back about that kind mm-hmm. of stuff and say, you I know what? So. I'm not shopping at Nike anymore if they're going to do all this stuff that I don't like. Yeah, and I maybe mean, look what happened with Goya. I mean, you know, right. it, it yeah. ended up being in their favor. Maybe, you know, but I think that's what this is. It's a very small subset of people, but it's media amplification of those people. And Mm -hmm. it's it's the corporations caving that makes people believe that this is a huge, huge problem that needs to be tackled now. And even people like Ben Shapiro, who, again, amplify it and make it into the the number one pressing problem of uh, in politics today. I completely agree. If it didn't get that amount of oxygen the people who believe in conservative values and government wouldn't feel so threatened by it because it is threatening. If it was, if the numbers behind the movement equaled the volume that it gets, it would be a big, big problem for our country. And we should be, be threatened by that. But luckily for us, it isn't. We just need the media to fricking tone it down so that it reflects the amount of people that actually believe in this. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also, you know, we, we travel in such, um, we travel in sort of echo chamber circles now. So so we don't know. Yeah, now more than ever. We don't really know the other side. So I think a lot of people who are conservative mm-hmm. only know conservatives, right? They only know about mm-hmm. liberals from what they see on TV and what they hear, what they see from the corporations and what they see on Fox News, right? They don't know mm-hmm. that my parents, for instance, are as liberal as you can get. Policy, they're Democrats, Right. But they're right. not wokers. They're not. They're not part of this this mm-hmm. crazy society that sees everything yeah. through race or that wants to erase all our history. And I don't think most are. And I actually, it's not think. I know most are aren't. So anyway, before we get off this topic, it should also be noted that Texas GOP Chairman Alan West, as Jay alluded to earlier, also responded to the Supreme Court loss with talk of secession. He wrote, "Quote." Uh, Perhaps law-abiding states should bond together and form a union of states that will abide by the Constitution. So to have Rush Limbaugh and the chairman of the Texas GOP suggest secession in the same week is kind of a big deal. Now, is this the right-wing version of snowflakeism because they didn't get what they wanted? Is this sort of a temper tantrum? Probably. But I do think we will see the idea of secession expand over the next four years and continue to expand until a Republican is becomes president again, because that's how it works, Jay. That's the secret, right? The Republicans get very patriotic about America when they have people they like in power. As soon as that changes, they're threatening to leave the country like a spoiled child. Yeah. Well, Canada did get the vaccine first. It's true. <laughs> it's like my son the other day got mad at me over something and like literally was like, oh, I'm leaving, like went in his room and packed his bags and everything. It's, Aww, it's, it's, he did? He did. He didn't end up That's going adorable. anywhere because he got scared. He's like, but there are yeah, ghosts well, outside. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind coronavirus. Yeah. That was his first thing was ghosts. <laughs> ghosts, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a temper tantrum, hopefully. Now, one more thing I do want to mention is that states threatening secession is really nothing new. As with everything else, the clock didn't start ticking at Donald Trump, snowflakes. Now, there has been a California secession movement for years. Uh, It used to be called Cal Exit. It's now called Yes, California. I think Cal Exit was a better name, actually. Way better. Yeah. Uh, According to Wikipedia, Yes, California is a Californian political action committee that promotes the independence of the state of California from the United States. Uh, Never gained much traction, but it actually did almost end up on a ballot. It had enough signatures. It didn't quite get there. 
I guess the thought process behind this is that California is the sixth largest economy in the world. And um, our values were just becoming two different, same principle, two different Mm -hmm. values from the rest of the country. We should form our own country. Alaska did something similar to this. They had an Alaska secession party that was talking about uh, breaking off and that it was a bad idea to ever join the United States in the in the first talking place. About breaking off is it's a bad bad choice of words there because Alaska could. It's true, it's true. The bottom line is that this kind of stuff has been around for a while. It didn't just start, it just seems to be uh, amplified now by bigger voices. So that's yep, good point. Good point. Now, uh one more story I want to touch on that has some cultural relevance here. We're doing a lot of culture stuff here, but I, you know, I think it's important, um, mm-hmm. especially towards the end of the year. Uh, a huge scandal broke out in right-wing circles this past week when uh, Joseph Epstein, an op-ed writer for the Wall Street Journal, penned an op-ed entitled, Is There a Doctor in the White House? Not if you need an MD. Jill Biden should think about dropping the honorific, which feels fraudulent, even comic. Uh, this op- op-ed, as you would expect, led to tremendous outrage from left-wing journalists all over the world, even some who were saying it was sexist, uh, which then prompted pretty much every right-wing commentator on the scene to do a full dissertation of their own into why, indeed, Jill Biden is not a doctor, even though she does have a doctorate in education. Now, before this stunningly dumb controversy broke out, I probably would have fallen on the side of Joseph Epstein, you know, the guy who wrote the op-ed, because I have long believed that it is silly for anyone who isn't a medical doctor to call themselves a doctor, right? Like, in fact, I've taken a lot of flack for this over the years. I've been saying this for years. Every time I voice that opinion, um, someone has given me flack for it. Like, I I remember getting into an argument with my chiropractor a few years ago that I used to go (laughs) to. Well, chiropractors are not doctors. Right. I, I, I remember literally saying to him, like, frankly, I think it's ridiculous that we call you doctor, whatever your name was. Yeah, because you took a chiropractor course and got a license like not to diminish anyone's accomplishments in life and i know chiropractors you know they go through schooling and do everything else but i've always said that by this logic by the way for what you of course and i've always said that by this logic anyone could be a doctor like we can have a doctor of food service or a a doctor (laughs) of architecture like my father could have been a doctor of marketing and branding your father jay could have been a doctor of real estate development like Mm -hmm. (laughs) i always found it silly However, in examining the viewpoints of the right-wing commentators that were all agreeing with this piece in the Wall Street Journal, I mean, some of these guys did full episodes on this this thing. I realized that this was yet again another culture war issue. And I think I'll let Ben Shapiro again, because he's a great speaker and he's prolific, I will let him again explain his point of view quickly in his usual manner. Ben Shapiro, go. Because right now, what we have in the country are a new managerial elite, a new ruling class, a new upper class. And they stand at the top of our institutions. They stand at the top of the Hollywood infrastructure. They stand at the top of our mainstream media. They stand at the top levels of administrative government. They stand at the top levels of sports, right? Every area of American life where institutions have power, with possibly the exception of some churches, all of those institutions are rife with a managerial elite, a new elite class. Now, when I say elite, I don't mean that these people are better than you in any real sense, or better than me in any real sense. What I mean is that they are deemed elite because of credentialism, because they can point to their degrees, they can point to the fact they went to really good schools. But there's something else that has happened. And it's not just that the meritocracy has produced people who went to colleges and now are in charge of things because they went to colleges. In fact, the truth is that so much of the credentialism that happens in our culture is a lie and stupid. The fact is that if you graduate top of your high school class, 
and you don't go to college, you're going to perform at least as well as the person who graduated middle of the high school class and went to college and graduated in the bottom 50% of their class in, in college. So college is really not the dividing line. It's just that companies, people around the country typically use colleges as a sort of way of rating, in, uh, rating IQ. Right? We don't have these sort of broad IQ tests. So instead, what we have is people looking at your degree and then thinking you're smarter because you went to college than if you didn't go to college, which is a really blunt instrument and very often untrue. It's one of the reasons why we here at Daily Wire actually do not require a college degree in order to apply for our jobs. And we'd be hypocrites if we did, considering that two out of the three people who are at the top of the company are not college graduates. Okay, so what this whole Jill Biden is not a doctor controversy represents, the bigger picture, is again a growing anti-elitist movement on the right that demonizes higher education. It's a switcheroo. Right, to, it demonizes higher education to a certain extent and included in that is so-called credentialism, the sort of idea that your value in the workforce is based upon how many letters you have next to your name. And I think it's really telling coming from someone like Shapiro, who has a degree from Harvard Law School, uh, because he makes a point in saying at the end of that clip that his own company doesn't put any value on college education and what credentials an employee has. And I wanted to talk about this just for a second, because I see this is yet another great dividing line between the left and the right, and what I've noticed to be a growing anti-intellectual trend coming from the right. It's why we see the demonization of people like Anthony Fauci and people mm -hmm. like Barack Obama and people like Dr. Jill Biden, because yeah. the, the sort of new mantra is that we're not going to listen to these people anymore. We don't care how many degrees you have. We don't care if you have an overpriced doctorate in education from uh, you know, Delaware University. The, the, the so-called elite ruling class is not going to tell me what to do or how to live anymore. And, and I see a cultural extension here. If you look at the ratings over the last decade or so for like the Grammys and the Oscars and mainstream media, there mm -hmm. has been a market decline in viewership because conservative America is slowly tuning out those cultural institutions because they no lo longer represent their values. It's just another example, Jay, of the two America concept that has, in my opinion, been artificially exacerbated Agreed. by the right-wing media and, and right-wing punditry, frankly. Yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate that now they're sort of dissuading people on the right from seeking higher education. I, yeah. I mean, forget about, we talked about this recently. I mean, forget about for your industry that you're looking to go into. How about just for education's yeah. sake? We are a better electorate and a better populace when we know more about things. Right. And there's so much out there to study and mm -hmm. so much great information to learn that we should be promoting education. I don't care what side of the aisle you're right. on. That should right. have nothing to do with it. Right. Now, again, this is a nuanced conversation. I mean, one thing I'll say is that in the 50s, when only a small percentage of people had college degrees, the yeah. the, the the job market was worked a lot differently, obviously. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, because you, I think it's something like 36% of the entire population has a college That's degree, right. um, mm -hmm. even getting low-level jobs in companies require a bachelor's degree or yeah. an associate's degree. And mm -hmm. so what that has done is it has left people who don't have degrees at the bottom end of the spectrum. And sure. I think that is part of the culture war. That's mm -hmm. part of it, right? Um, but, you know, it is funny that someone like Shapiro, he constantly rails against against degrees. And again, he went to Harvard. Yeah, yeah um, he's very well educated. Right. It's, uh, and you could tell that, obviously. Oh, yeah, of it, course. It, it's, it's, 
it's a very interesting thing that has that has happened. I think it's just again very indicative of this this massive culture war we're in that is not nearly as big as it seems. It mm-hmm. just seems big because it's what gets so amplified. Speaking of higher education, in underreported news this week, my alma mater, Cambridge University, strongly rejected guidelines requiring staff, students, and visiting speakers to remain, quote, respectful of the views and, quote, identities of others after warnings that this could limit freedom of expression. In lieu of accepting the guidelines, they have issued a policy on free speech that will support tolerance of differing views. The university's governing body, the Regent House, voted by a large majority to support amendments that ensure that the university remains an institution open to debate on controversial ideas and issues of every and any stripe. The revised wording on free speech ensures the right to express controversial or unpopular opinions within the law without fear of intolerance or discrimination. The guidelines expect that staff, students, and visitors to be tolerant of the differing opinions of others. The university also pledged that they will continue to bring in controversial outside speakers so long as they remain within the law. The university's vice chancellor, Stephen Toop, said that the aim had been to protect the core values of freedom of speech, but also recognizing the need to maintain civility in debate. Slow clap for the Brits. Slow clap. I Cancel. like it. Culture be damned, yes. American universities, take note, this is how you do it. This is something that more liberals need to get behind that yeah. will help in preventing this culture war for, from yeah. getting more extreme when it doesn't need to be. I think most people in America would believe in in this decision as being I a agree. good decision. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we should call out when... Thing you know that shouldn't be a right wing. It's funny that is billed as a right wing story now. I know you know it's it crazy. shouldn't be. That's those yeah. are uh, American human values, frankly, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. same with I, I don't know if you heard this. Another story that's sort of in that same mold that happened this week is that uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York banned the Confederate flag. Did you hear this? Yeah, from being sold that. in the state of New York. Now mm-hmm. I hate the Confederate flag. I for sure. a, a, a myriad of reasons that yeah. we could go into some other time, but um. I still think in America, you should be able to fly whatever the hell flag you want, even if it's a Nazi yeah. flag, you know? And, it, this, and yeah. this is part of our history. Yeah. I mean, you can't deny that. So to just ban something mm-hmm. outright, it just goes against American yeah. ideals. And I'm from New York, and I know New yeah. Yorkers. And w- this is a perfect example, just like with corporations. What mm-hmm. Cuomo is doing is caving to the most radical impulses of his of his base. It is not where most New Yorkers... It, New Yorkers don't give a crap about care. that stuff. The, the average person walking around in Manhattan is like, oh my God, a Confederate flag. I better go into a, a pothole somewhere. I mean, come uh, on. Yeah, no. It's it's ridiculous. So uh, yeah, we have to watch that stuff. All right. Anyway, uh, that was a great segment, Jay. We did a lot. Talked about a lot. A Again, we, lots of news. We, we lots bring news. in the we bring the news back to a lot of other things. You're you're not going to see Brianna Keeler at CNN doing that. <laughs> you're certainly not going to sing see uh, Block of Wood, Chris Cuomo brother yeah. of andrew cuomo on cnn Block doing that yeah <laughs> okay uh we have a new segment for you guys new segment alert the last new segment of 2020 of 2020 it's it yeah wow. and you know i said a few weeks ago that in the wake of an election the data from said election can often take years to analyze and break mm-hmm. down so being a real data nut myself i love analytics jay as you oh, know boy. yeah i expect that we'll be talking a lot about the numbers from the 2020 election for years to come yeah and, lots to learn there yeah and and that's why it facilitates its own segment so we sort of previewed this 
this segment a few weeks ago. You might not remember, but we never actually made it official. It was like one of the segments within a segment thing. So here it is officially the last new segment of the year. This is Math with Riz. It's hip to be square. Okay, so um, Harry Anson, who is one of my favorite political numbers analysts, he worked uh, over at 538. Now he works at CNN. The nice Jewish boy, Jay, as, as one would assume, uh, right? Those. He works with numbers, yeah. right? Of course. Yeah, so so he had a great piece over at CNN this week titled, Trump Made Big Inroads in Hispanic Areas Across the Nation. Uh, you could look it up and read it. Um, now, I won't go... Don't read it. You'll fall asleep. Just yeah, listen to this segment. Exactly. Now, I'm not going to go through the entire article and de- detail everything for the sake of time here, but let's just say that the Hispanic vote that shifted to the GOP, not just for Trump, but down ballot, could be the most stunning revelation of the 2020 election or any election in our lifetime, Jay, honestly. Mm-hmm. In yeah. Star County, Texas, for instance which is a county that is 95% Hispanic, the largest Hispanic county in the entire country, where Trump was defeated by 60 points in 2016, 60 points. In 2020, he only lost by five points, which according, according to Harry Enton, it's the largest swing of any county in the last 40 years. Wow. This was repeated throughout many Hispanic counties across the country, in Miami, in Texas, uh, and even in California, where uh, East Los Angeles, a predominantly Hispanic community, voted more for Republicans this year than they have since 1952. And to be honest, we saw a very similar phenomenon take place in the black communities across the country. Now, these communities are diverse, of course. We don't want to generalize too much. There are a lot of times they're religious communities. Uh, someone I was listening to on a, a podcast was saying that Hispanic men in particular had a strange sort of affinity with Trump because, and again, this, this is being very general and sort of stereotyping a little, but the sort of tough guy persona is a cultural mm-hmm. behavior that I guess a lot of Hispanic men relate to. Uh, but I think more than any kind of behavioral elements that may be helping the GOP make inroads uh, into the Hispanic and black community, the more important element is that it's it's basically what we've been talking about the last few episodes, which is that the Republican Party officially is sort of shifting to not just the party of the middle class or the working class, but also the party of the blue collar worker. And in minority communities, you have a very high percentage of blue collar workers compared to predominantly white communities. So I think the GOP is making inroads because minority communities can simply relate more to the cultural shift that has happened inside the GOP. So not to drag this on too long, I'm going to make a prediction here, Jay. Okay, I've been, okay. Um, I think it's my second prediction of the, of the episode. There might even be yeah. more later. Okay, I think <laughs> this is going to take about 20 years to happen. So if we still have this podcast in 20 years, save this episode, come back to it in about 2040, and please call me out if my prediction doesn't come true. You ready? I'll I'll set an alarm. Okay, here you go. In the next 20 years, I think we're going to see a massive shift from both Black Americans and Hispanic Americans to the Republican Party, and the majority of those demographics will vote Republican by 2040. I, I think get behind that. Okay. I think the Republican Party will continue to sort of rebrand themselves as the party mm-hmm. of the working class and the party of the blue collar worker. And with that, they will support policies that look nothing like policies the GOP classically supported. For instance, 
I think they will support government intervention into the economy to stop the bleeding of working class, you know, blue collar jobs. I think they will support their version of unionization for workers. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, and this will blow your minds, I think they'll loosen their determination to subvert illegal immigration from South America and become the party that is actually soft on immigration because they'll realize that it helps them politically and it helps them electorally as you'll have people migrating from South America that are predominantly working class blue collar workers who are seeking the American dream, the GOP's version of which will seem a lot more attainable to them than the Democrats version. Now, at the same time, we will see the Democratic Party continue to grow their base of so-called college-educated elites, most of whom will occupy the small corridors, as I talked about a couple episodes ago, between Seattle and San Diego and Boston and D.C., and you know, throw in a little Chicago, throw in a little Denver, <laughs> throw in a little Nashville, throw in a, a little bit of Austin or all of Austin, as it were. And yep. that's your Democratic Party base. And mm-hmm. people like your dad and Fred Zeidman, who will unfortunately be very old by 2040 if they're alive, mm-hmm. knock on wood, uh, they will officially be Democrats. The new right. generation of free market capitalists will be Democrats. I'll even say this, Jay. Your wife will be a Democrat or voting Democrat by 2040. Mark oh, my man, words. I hope she's not listening to this Well, one. you have to get her to. That's the thing. Because <laughs> the, you have to get her to listen. Because I've, I've now talked about your wife several times on this show. You should tell yeah. her. I've really talked about you a lot. You have to listen no, to this That'll episode. get her to listen. I am making that prediction. By 2040, she will be voting Democrat. Because she is going to have more in common, as you are, with the mm-hmm. people who vote Democrat. And the, the Republican base is, is, is going to shift. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. saying they're going to shift all of their values. I think mm-hmm. they're going to very much be the pro-American dream, pro-worker party. It's just they're going to shift their support base. Mm-hmm. And the intellectual sort of college-educated, support, you know, wealthy, white-collar support base is going to move to the Democrats exclusively. I really think that's going to happen. It's a very interesting conundrum yeah. for the for the classic conservative who mm-hmm. does believe in a higher education, right. who who does have values that are now getting split between the parties. Mm-hmm. It, again, like I see where the arrow points. I think it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to see Hold me to it, but there's really no 2040. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll check back. Exactly. Maybe we'll still have this podcast. Um, but there's really no other way to 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 uh, decipher these numbers and no. you know d- see what what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And we see it now in people like Kimberly Klasik, uh, sure. you know, minority communities that are rising up and saying. 50 years of democratic control we've got nothing nothing for for it maybe it's time to try something new and i think the republicans are waking up and seeing this and saying our opportunity is being the party of the working class people who Mm -hmm. work with their hands security guards cops all cops Mm -hmm. are voting republican now firemen um yeah i mean why would a cop or anyone related to a cop vote for a democrat after the rhetoric that has gone on i wouldn't that's right if i had a if i had a brother or something that was a cop i wouldn't vote for for the democrats after what what's gone down so Mm -hmm. i think you're gonna see all those sort of classically blue collar workers move exclusively to the republican party and all of the white collar ones move to the democrats that's what's gonna happen that's my prediction i'm sticking with it all right all right so moving on it's been a long year, Jay. It's it been it's been like the longest year of my life, I think. And on top of COVID and lockdowns and everything else we've had to deal with, there's been a ton of crazy political news. And I, for one, am a little burnout on it, as I know you are as well. And that's Certainly. why, in the spirit of the holiday season and the end of this godforsaken year called 2020, Jay 
is back with a segment we brought on a couple months ago, a segment in which we bring you normal news that we enjoyed before Trump crashed on the scene and broke everything. This is Extremely Normal News. This is Extremely Normal News. Welcome to Extremely Normal News. On Friday, President Trumpy Claus signed an executive order giving federal workers a paid day off of work on Christmas Eve. Most workers were getting half a day maximum, so this was welcome news from the snowman-in-chief. Former presidents Barack Scrooge and Ebenezer Clinton only gave half days when Christmas fell on a Friday. Google's Santa Tracker has returned to all of our computer screens, which is a good thing considering we have nothing else to watch on any streaming services. Now you'll notice a new addition to Santa and Mrs. Claus's outfits. Yep, a big old purple mask for each of them. Gotta keep the Claus family safe from COVID, but obviously Santa still gets to travel on Christmas. Go to santatracker.google.com to check it out for yourself. In even more Christmas news, on December 21st, Jupiter and Saturn will line up to form a very bright, great conjunction, as it's called. But what we're going to call it, along with every other media outlet, is the Christmas star. This phenomenon, which hasn't been seen in 800 years, will be seen low in the southwest in the hour after sunset. This will be the closest Jupiter and Saturn have appeared since March 4th, 1226, and won't happen again until 2080. In even more Christmas news... The Kimball family of San Antonio, Texas, who may seem like your average family with average Christmas traditions. But, well, they are your average family, but the Kimballs of San Antonio no longer have average Christmas traditions. This year, Riz, this year, the family all got together to film a music video Christmas card. Oh, my, I can't believe it. I know. The video has thousands of views since it was posted online. I love it, though. The best part, genuinely, is that they're giving the money they saved from not sending out hundreds of physical Christmas cards to charity to help with hurricane relief in Honduras. Great work, Kimball family. Finally, in some Hanukkah news, because you need a ratio of about four to one between Hanukkah and Christmas things, we have good old Smokey Robinson making headlines with his severe lack of knowledge about Hanukkah and a decent mispronunciation of the name. Now, all of this happened, actually, because of friends of the show, Jensen Karp and Danielle Fischel Karp, who have their own show specifically about Cameo called Talk Ain't Cheap, which is incredible, and you should check it out everywhere podcasts are available, inspired Smokey Robinson fan Jeff Jacobson to purchase a Cameo from Robinson for his mother. And in it, Smokey just completely botches the name, and this is what it sounded like. I was contacted by your sons, Jeff and Jarrah, and they wanted me... They told me that you used to live in Detroit across the street from me. And gosh, that's that's beautiful. Um, how are you doing again? <laughs> nice talking to you again, I guess. But anyway, you're living in Vancouver now. And they want me to wish you happy Chinooka. I have no idea what Chinooka is, but happy Chinooka <laughs> because they said so. You got to love Smokey, though. I mean, I don't care if he doesn't know how to pronounce Hanukkah. That falsetto, I mean, it's beautiful. Oh, it's- the gorgeous. family didn't care. They're like, uh, whatever you want, Mr. <laughs> Robinson. So what, once the clip went viral, after Jeff posted it, Robinson issued an immediate apology, blaming 2020, as he can, and asked for the mother's phone number in order to send a video with the right pronunciation. Or maybe he wants to ask her out. Who knows? Either way, Jensen and Danielle will be covering this and the whole story of how it happened on their podcast, Talk Eight Cheap, next week. So be sure to check that out. And that is all I have for Extremely Normal News.
<laughs> great set, Jay. I feel the calm washing over me. I it's really so like, nice. I Isn't really like great? that part about blaming 2020, which Smokey did. Like, I'm going to start, I should start using that. I don't know why, you know, we're in the last month, the end of the last month. Yeah, blame now. everything on 2020. I should just not do the dishes. And when my wife yeah, was like, why sure. didn't you do the dishes? I'm like, 2020. What yeah, are you going to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take the dog out. I'm not doing anything. It's 2020. Okay. All right. Let me know yeah. how it works out for you. <laughs> exactly. In fact, screw this podcast. See you later. I'm out. <laughs> 2020. <laughs> All right, guys. Moving on. We have a very quick culture corner segment. I know we've been talking about culture a lot, but we're going to go back to the original intention of uh, the culture corner segment, which is to bring you things that are not political necessarily but bring them into the political realm Mm -hmm. this week we have uh you know one to close out the year and uh this is called culture corner culture corner go the big question about new nerd cereal is orange flavor get hold of the nintendo entertainment system Transformers will return after these messages. Welcome to Blockbuster Video. Blockbuster Video. Okay, so uh, this is more of a recommendation than anything else, Jay. Uh, I have been a huge fan of filmmaker Ken Burns, who, of course, is well known for his documentaries about the American experience that air on PBS. Uh, He is a true national treasure, and uh, some of his films have had a huge impact on my life, honestly. But uh, a few weeks ago, uh, he was featured on a segment of 60 Minutes on CBS on Sunday Mm. night, uh, talking about his life and his work and his motivation to produce films about America and pivotal moments in American history. And I was so moved by the piece on 60 Minutes and by his interview that I decided I would start at Ken Burns' very first film which is entitled brooklyn bridge and it Mm -hmm. came out in 1981 when i was just one and i would slowly watch every single one of his films in order which are luckily all available on amazon prime tv if you have the additional pbs package which is like two Mm -hmm. bucks two bucks a month or something um and it's great because the films are watchable fascinating historic and entertaining but are also slow and sort of mesmerizing so for a guy like me who has historically had a lot of trouble falling asleep i've struggled with insomnia for years on and off this new venture has been a godsend for me i i watch about 30 minutes of whatever one of his films that i'm on every night in bed until my eyes start getting really heavy and i fall asleep soundly and i've been really really enjoying it and sleeping like a baby so so far i've watched uh, brooklyn bridge the shakers mm-hmm. the statue of liberty huey long uh thomas hart benton and i'm at the tail end of the congress uh nice. if you've never checked out any of ken burns films some of the highlights include the civil war baseball the west jazz and my personal favorite prohibition prohibition was actually the one that moved me in a more libertarian direction so again his films have uh, colored my my worldview for sure uh they're wonderful films and extremely educational so check it out you can actually go to kenburns.com and click on uh, the films for a complete list of all of them and by the way there are many more in the making so wonderful ken burns check it out that's all i got for you today i love it that's fantastic he is a preserver of history and a fantastic preserver of history he is he is a national treasure. I agree. Excellent. He, he is a very important man. Very true. So uh, I got something for you too, Riz. Okay. 
It's, it is also a recommendation. And this happened, I, I first saw this thing two years ago, because I do love me some culture, and mm -hmm. live theater was a thing then. Yeah. So I, I purchased tickets for my wife Tiffany and I to go see a one-man performance of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol at the Geffen Theater in Los Angeles. I didn't do any research prior to this right. uh, on the show itself, and I believe we even, we, I think we went on opening night. I did not expect much from the show, except for a decently faithful retelling of the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, and some Christmassy lights and the usual things we find when you go to the theater around Christmas time. You know, things that make you feel good. We walked out of the theater with our jaws on the floor. Hmm. So much so, that we bought tickets again, and actually ran into friends of the pod, Brian and Mandy Cogman, who were there going for their second time as well. Wait, wait, not to confuse people, we should mention yes. that Brian Cogman is another brother in the series of, <laughs> of brothers. So you've heard yeah. Mark Cogman on our podcast in episode 10. You've mm -hmm. heard Clay Cogman. He's our editor-in-chief of the Intermere. We've had him several times on the show. And yeah. Brian Cogman is another illustrious, great Cogman. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's eluded us, but we'll get him on. Yes. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this performance that we saw was so astounding. Every element of it, from the acting and delivery of just one man playing every single part, this, this gentleman, Jefferson Mays, whom you might know from numerous shows on Broadway or television shows, Law and Order or The Americans, to the sound design, the set design, the direction, everything about this production is detailed and intricate and nuanced and really astounding. It's, it is a faithful retelling of the story, but as such, it's dark and frightening and reaches an incredibly heartfelt climax. Now, you may be listening to this wondering why the heck I'm telling you about a show you can't go to. Right. Well, calm down. I'm about to tell you. Okay. In, in October, Jefferson Mays and his team produced a version of the show for streaming audiences, and they have now made it available worldwide via their website, achristmascarollive.com. And it's only available until January 3rd. Mm. It ain't cheap, though. It'll cost you $36 for a 24-hour stream. Okay. But I love this idea. Because we can't go to the theater, obviously. Right. Which, by the way, costs a lot more for even just one ticket. Yeah. So get yourself a ticket to this, making an event in your household, make a themed meal or themed drinks or some themed popcorn, put this on, turn the volume up, and get ready to be astounded by the virtuosity of this performance. It's so good. You have to go see it. Yeah, that's that sounds awesome. I'm definitely going to do that. Is it? It's kid-friendly, of course. It is. It's a little scary, but okay. there's no cursing. Yeah, it's yeah, kid my, friendly. My yeah. kids are, are are not scared of anything. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're not even scared of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fantastic. Yeah, I no, and, and I love the idea of the virtual show. I think it's a way to make lemonade out of lemons. Our our uh, friend of the pod, Jack Barricat, and his band yep. All Time Low has has been very successful with that and in, in filming these these virtual concerts that they're selling tickets for. And yeah, they have one today. Actually, Jack's set is today. You're listening right. to this on Friday. It comes out on Friday. Mm -hmm. Jack's set is today. Go nice. check it out, alltimelow.com. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a great thing. It makes you remember that the world is still turning and we have to yes. remember that. So my daughter is a huge all-time low fan and I bought her a ticket and she like dressed up for the concert and everything yeah, and like on exactly. our couch. And it just felt like... Uh, it felt real, you know, it's, it's a new yeah. way of doing it, but I love it. And it's actually puts money in, in artist pockets, which both Jay and I are very, very big supporters of, um, yay capitalism. So last segment of the year, 2020, wow. this is it. Okay. Now this is the topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. All right. So if you remember last week, we talked about globalization, a big nuanced topic that uh, we'll be talking a lot 
more about in the future. Uh, we're going to answer that question that we got in front of the show. And uh, this week, we are going to we were going to talk about automation, which not only goes hand in hand with globalization, but very much relates to the cultural shifts that are happening inside the Republican Party and so on and so forth. However, we totally forgot that this was the last episode of the year. And we couldn't leave you guys without a holiday-inspired topic of the day. We realize you're probably looking at the title and saying, well, when are they going to get to the holiday stuff, right? So the topic of the day this week is, are we a Christian nation? Now, you probably hear this a lot. America is a Christian nation. It says, in God we trust on our money. But I wanted to ask the resident theologian on the show, my good buddy Jay, who came to Christianity himself a few years ago and ended up getting a master's degree in theology. Speaking of credentialism, right? Uh, elitist, Jay. You're very yeah, my elitist, horrible Jay. degree. <laughs> so, Jay, before we get into the topic, could you briefly tell our audience how you found Christ and what a Messianic Jew exactly is? All right. So I'll, I'll try and keep this as short as possible. Okay. But I'll get a little personal here with you listeners. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I'll miss a lot, but I'll do my best. I grew up a secular Jew in a secular household, much like you, Riz. And now I did maybe 3% more than most. I got confirmed after, after my bar mitzvah. I played in the jazz band at Temple. Most secular Jews are not involved in anything past their bat or bar mitzvahs, and then maybe a few holidays every year past that. I had little to no interest in organized religion, and have pretty much always, like you say often, Riz, thought it was a net negative for society. Right. Since I was a kid, I was always pretty conscious of the fact that there's a shared experience for us as humans, and that shared experience is like, there's an emptiness to it, a missing piece. And it's what so much art is centered around. Paintings, music, film, this idea that we're missing something, we can't p- quite put our finger on what it is. And it's this hole that we are constantly trying to fill, right? Some people try and fill it with stuff. Some people try and fill it with relationships. Some people try and fill it with substances. But it's a pretty universal feeling. I was always very conscious of that, but I had no answer. So I did what everyone else did. I tried to fill it with all those things. And wherever that desire went, so did my identity. It was music or my job, which was in music or my relationships and on and on. Whatever was in front of me, I just used it as an opportunity to try and fill that hole. And I was in a band and went on tour. I tried to do the same with whatever and whomever was around me. Mm. And it's so cliche, right? But devoid of the right place to turn to, we only have the options we know about. So I hit my head against the wall a lot, and I made a great many bad decisions, my first marriage included, which is all I'll say about that for now. Yeah. And after touring, which was definitely the most excess and searching I had experienced, I met my current wife, Tiffany. We were actually set up, and funnily enough, because her family places a very large emphasis on the Jewish traditions within Christianity, and I'll get back to that, the person who set us up thought she was actually Jewish. So I had zero understanding of anything related to Jesus except for what I experienced at my Episcopalian school in Boca Raton, which was 30% Jewish. So out of pure curiosity, I asked Tiff what I could read just to understand more as we were getting to know each other. She just handed me the Bible, and only because I asked. She didn't force anything on me. I started reading the book of John and a couple other things she gave me, some C.S. Lewis, a couple textbooks. I made it a habit to read a little bit of the Bible, a little bit at a time every night. And as I was reading, I noticed I was experiencing an emotion I had never felt before, but didn't quite know what to call. So I just kept on reading. Eventually, I got curious enough to go to a church service at a place called uh, Reality LA in Los Angeles. A pastor named Casey Fritz was preaching. And in this sermon, which even when I listen back now, felt like it was preached directly at me, Casey was talking about the existence of joy and the definition of joy and what that emotion was. I had never really thought about that word or ever used it. I definitely didn't use it regularly. And I talked a lot about happiness, fulfillment, excitement. These are words we use often, but not really joy. Right. And what I learned in that sermon is how joy is connected to God and to scripture. 
And in an instant, I felt and understood my connection to the same God of Israel I had always known, to his son Jesus, or Yeshua as he's, as he's called in the Bible. It was instantaneous. And there, were, that was really a, there was a serious spiritual element to that, but also very practical in all the other things I had been reading up to this point. So I had this instantaneous moment and gave myself to Yeshua. But what wasn't instantaneous was the journey I went through next, which was sort of another search for my identity in Yeshua. So everything all of a sudden fit for me. And when I read the Bible, I understood life through the mistakes I had made uh, previous. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I had in my hand a manual for living life. And this manual is available to everyone. And I felt really called to understand it and apply it to my life in in a real practical way. So I started studying. I found a program in Cambridge and started studying at Cambridge. I got my master's in theology eventually. Cam- and Cambridge, st- England, not Cambridge, Cambridge Yeah, Cambridge University. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm still learning and growing in my relationship with God, but that's pretty much the story. Right. Uh, and as far as what a Messianic Jew is, it's a simple yet complex answer. So there are a few different types of Jewish people in the world, but you can generalize to say that there are Jews who are secular, who just have their culture, matzo ball soup, and more in common with Italians, I would say. Right. Um, Jews who believe in the Old Testament and that the Messiah is yet to come, the Orthodox and conservatives and the like. Yeah. And then you have Messianic Jews who believe in the New Testament as the sequel to the Old Testament and that Yeshua or Jesus is the Messiah, who Jesus, who was a Jew, right. which really completes the circle as a Jew. It's a very, very beautiful thing for me mm-hmm. to be able to have that handshake there between right. those, those, uh, those two pieces of the Bible, two, pieces, two half pieces of the whole story. Now, how does this differ from, you know, some Jews might know of the group Jews for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually in Westwood, there, there's like a yeah, Jews for G- Jesus, cha- like a, uh, what's it called? A chapter. Um, yeah. And I, I passed the door once and saw the Jews for Jesus. Like, is that a similar thing to Messianic? It's Jew? similar. I, yeah. it's, it's definitely similar. And there's, there are connections there to, to that group. Right. I think that there, because of the, some of the issues inside the Jewish community, with the understanding of what a Messianic Jew is, yeah, Jesus is like a four-letter word to most Jews. It was right. to me growing up, yeah. and yeah. you know, it certainly is to my parents. I'm sure to your parents as yeah. well. Yeah, uh, it's just generational. Yeah. And so, Jews for Jesus, I they just don't do a great job of grasping the totality of the concept. Yeah. So I've I, I've never I, I like I love people I've met in the organization, but mm-hmm. I've never really affiliated myself with the organization for that reason. Right. Well, that's thank you so much for telling that story, man. Because mm-hmm. you know, I knew I knew uh, the basic story, but I don't even think I knew all of those details. Now, one question I had was: your you going to Cambridge was that influenced by your newfound religion, or was it the other way around? It was influenced. So it was really my quest to understand more. Okay. And what was really interesting about that uh, experience for me was. I felt very young in my faith because I was. I mean, and I was surrounded by people who have been understanding or studying this for a very long time, and they had scripture memorized, and they knew the the historicity of the Bible. And you know, I'd been to Israel, but wasn't really you know, I didn't get that that history uh, the first time I went. Shout out to my wife's mother's tour company because right. I went the second time and it was amazing. Okay, but I really felt called to understand the Bible more, and I went trying to understand facts and figures. Right. And I learned that. I did learn the history of Christianity and the history of Judaism and the history of the Bible and where certain things were placed in time. And I learned scriptures and I had to read the whole Bible. And I mean, all of this amazing stuff, how to exegete. But what you really taught by learning all of these things is how consistent God's character is throughout right. the entire story of the scripture. And the most important thing in scripture is that story and that consistency with how God acts, first with the Jews and then with the entire world. 
So yeah. it's, it was a very, very interesting thing. But I would definitely say I was influenced by my faith to go seek more. Okay, now two more questions, because um, that's really interesting. Now, do you, do you think that being a, you know, you've talked a lot, even on the show, about um, the sort of hypocrisy that exists within the Christian community and how, yeah. the, you know, again, not to bring everything back to Trump, but he's, uh, you know, you've talked about on this show mm-hmm. how there's hypocrisy there. Do you think the fact that you are sort of a new Christian who came to this later in life has allowed you to not sort of toe the line of, 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 of what everyone else is doing out there that calls themselves Christians? Yeah, I mean, there is a group of people that sort of, they combine nationalism and Christianity. I think that's very dangerous. It's, it's a blessing and also a curse to have come late to this because okay. I didn't have it my whole life. And right. had I had it my whole life, I, made a, I may have made different decisions. Yeah, but then you wouldn't have ended up with, it's, you know, it's what my wife always says, like, all your decisions, even the bad ones, land you where you are today. And if you're happy today, then they're all great. They're all great decisions. I, I agree with that to an extent. I do think that there is such thing as sin, and there are consequences right. for that sin that saying. play out in your life. So I right. think that the, if I had known what those sins were, mm-hmm. I would make different decisions to avoid them so that I wouldn't have to suffer honest consequences that were played out in different areas of my life. I understand, yeah. But with that being said, coming to it later on um, at 32 was really interesting to see people who were steeped in it their entire lives completely unaware of things like i think i've mentioned on the show things i call christianese uh yeah sort of cultural things that have um grown in the church that people are blind to and one of those things is nationalism that has attached itself to trump yeah and created this sort of blindness with a certain within a certain sect of of christianity yeah a certain group of people to the wrongs of the of of that he's inflicted on the country in the office because he's he says he's for christianity when yeah. he's the guy's never picked up a bible except to no. hold it up for a photo op <laughs> right life. backwards uh, by the way yeah yeah but just because the you know this this group of people has been so underserved they're just mm. so excited mm. and unfortunately i think a lot of them have they too been excited. underserved though because see that's where you get a pushback from people like me and Miz mm-hmm. because Miz is uh the nickname of our friend mark cogman um, yeah. because if they're underserved, why do they occupy so much of the, 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 uh, seats in power? So much of the levers of power are occupied by Christian white men. So why have they been underserved? I just mean in, in terms of politically, and these are people that view them one and the same. They don't view a separation between church and state. Okay. And, and so therefore they feel that they have been underserved in government, in politics. And when there's a there's a president, I mean, Ronald Reagan was like this too. He held, and he was an actual Christian. I mean, right. not to say who's a Christian, who isn't, right. but he was a intelligent, uh, studied mm-hmm. uh, theologian. Like he understood right. the Bible. He know he read it. He spoke scripture often. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this was this is someone who's also held up. Same with Bush, um, George uh, W. Yeah. Bush. Yeah. W. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. But you know, having come off of someone like Barack Obama for you know eight years. Yeah. And Trump holds up a Bible, everyone cheers. Well, yeah, I think it's also, again, going back to it, it's, I think Christians are feeling culturally underserved. Not necessarily politically, because mm-hmm. um, politics is filled with Christians everywhere. It's, it's, it's all over the place. Um, but from a cultural standpoint, mm-hmm. and again, 
exacerbated by the media, this whole war yeah. on Christmas. There was never a war on Christmas. Nobody's ever cared about that. But that's No, all. but it's exactly what you said. It's, it's what you said earlier. It's that a company like Starbucks sees, right. oh, we might have a problem. Mm-hmm. Let's fix this. Yeah. And they knee jerk. And then, right. you, then you have the other, the other side is overreacting too. Right. They erase the Christian symbols from their cups or whatever. And yeah. that, that upsets a lot of Christians. I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. Now, uh, one, before we move on, the one more question I, ha- I wanted to ask you was, have you actually read the entire Bible? I had to for my master's. Cover they, to cover. You've read cover every to cover. Word. Wow. Straight through. Wow, mm-hmm. that's incredible. In multiple translations <laughs> and in Greek and Hebrew. Wow, what was your favorite? My favorite, I mean, the go-to translation is the good old ESV. Okay. So what exactly is the King James Bible? The King James is, so these translations, if you understand, the Bible was written in Aramaic, Hebrew, mm-hmm. and, and Greek. Right. For the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So... Every time you read that in English, you're reading a translation. Yeah. Someone has read into the Aramaic and someone has read into the Greek and they've translated. Okay. They've translated it. And you can do that in a myriad of different ways mm-hmm. uh, because they're not directly in right, English. Right, they're not, yeah. And so, you know, different people at different times of history in history have taken either greater or less liberties with the text. And that can, that's some of the danger in Christianity, by the way. I mean, in, 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 in lots of things. If you're, yeah. reading, if you're reading a translation of something, you have to meet you have to make sure you're getting to the source text and context as close as you can to understand where thing, this piece of writing is coming from. Part of this Christianese thing I talk about, people wield Bible verses as weapons all oh, the yeah. time. Well, it, used to, it was used to justify slavery for a long Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. Nine times out of ten, that person has not understood the context of the passage that they're throwing at you. Great movie, uh, 12 Years the Slave, tw- yeah. uh, 12 Years a Slave, rather. Uh, there was a, a scene that just stuck with me. It was sort of a riveting and, uh, and, and you know, sort of chilling scene where mm-hmm. um, one of the slaveholders is holding up the Bible and he's reading uh, about why it's man, white man's right to have slaves. And he holds it up and he goes, that's scripture, you know? And so it was very much justified in that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, moving on, why is uh, America a Christian nation if it is at all? So America itself was not formed as a Christian nation, as I'm sure most of us should know, by name or specifically. It does not have a national religion by design. The Constitution says nothing about the relationship between Christianity and the United States. So what people mean when they make a claim like this speaks to the culture at the time of the founding of our country, and therefore the blood running through America's veins and the DNA that makes up the fabric of this country. This absolutely is inherently Christian as these are the guiding principles that inform the choices made by our founding fathers. More specifically, the 13 colonies belonging to the British Empire did actually live under Christian rule. The colonies were founded as outposts of a Christian nation. Now, with American independence came religious independence as well. That was something that the founders wanted. They purposely created a nation that based its legitimacy on popular will and not on a higher power. However, There's an undeniable argument to be made. The founding fathers, some of whom were more liberal in their application of their theology, and most of whom were more conventional Christians, including many clergy of the day, were all motivated to act as they did based on their Christian faith. These founding fathers perceived a connection between their religious faith and natural rights, and furthermore believed that Christianity was necessary for maintaining moral virtue and assumed the nation would remain culturally Christian, um, obviously because it couldn't in government. Now, these moral and ethical principles derived from the Judeo-Christian tradition have from the very beginning been a major source of democratic values. Religion was an important motivating factor in both the colonization of North America 
and the American Revolution, even before the Constitution was written. The Founding Fathers set the bar high in terms of their respect for their religion, that they included its free exercise, along with free speech and a free press, among the liberties specifically protected by the First Amendment. When Christianity played a key role in their drive to perfect democracy, the drive later to abolish slavery, the enactment of women's suffrage, the civil rights struggle of the 1960s, this Protestant ethic provided the moral bedrock on which these Republican, small r, institutions were built. Right. Now, it's easy to find evidence of this. The first act of the very first Congress in 1774 was to ask a minister to open with prayer and to lead Congress in the reading of four entire chapters of the Bible. In 1776, in approving the Declaration of Independence, our founders acknowledged that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights mm -hmm. and noted that they were relying, quote, on the protection of divine providence in the founding of this country. John Quincy Adams famously said, the Declaration of Independence laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. Also, the signers of the 1783 Treaty of Paris, ending the Revolutionary War, insisted the treaty begin with the phrase, in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. In 1800, Congress approved the use of the Capitol building as a church. Both chambers approved the measure with the president of the Senate, Thomas Jefferson, giving the approval in that chamber. Throughout his term as VP and president, Jefferson attended church at the Capitol, even days after writing his letter, including the phrase, the wall of separation between church and state. Almost a hundred years later to the date in 1892, in the case of Church of the Holy Trinity v. United States, the United States Supreme Court itself held that America is a Christian nation. Mm. Presidents Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Jackson, McKinley, both Roosevelt's, Wilson, Hoover, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Reagan, and both Bushes all referenced the importance of Judeo-Christian principles in the birth and growth of our country. In fact, FDR led our nation in a six-minute prayer prior to the invasion of Normandy, asking God to preserve our Christian civilization. After the end of that war, Congress adopted, as you mentioned, Riz, In God We Trust as our national motto, and it was therefore engraved in the wall in front of which Nancy Pelosi now stands. Mm. This is just some of the basis for understanding that America was founded as a, quote, Christian nation. So there was a time in our history as Americans around the mid-20th century where we agreed as a nation that our democracy flourished only because it was rooted in shared ethical commitments common to the Christian and Jewish religions. Riz, you've often alluded to the statistical output of this time and the positives that came forth from it. Yeah. This was before the cultural wars began, what we're talking about so much uh, today, yeah. as culture of this era decided that the United States was a Judeo-Christian nation. Right. There's vast precedent for this in politics and culture, and while we may be unfortunately trending away from this ideal, it does not and should not take away two things. Number one, this country and democracy was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. And number two, we were better off when this system was the prevalent cultural mandate of the day. Right. And while America has always welcomed people from differing religions, backgrounds, and faiths, we will always and forever have the freedom and liberty that makes this country unique and wonderfully entwined with Judeo-Christian values. To let go of one is to let go of the other, and no amount of cancel culture can change that. Very cool. Yeah. Very, very excellent ex explanation. Really appreciate that, Jay. You, you mentioned several times in there, Judeo-Christian values or Judeo-Christian mm -hmm. ethics. What exactly are Judeo-Christian ethics? So there's a political answer to this, okay. one that's been co-opted by the alt-right mm -hmm. and the far-right for political gain. Mm -hmm. And the definition has been changed to represent something that, it, that really isn't. There's a real answer to this question, one that sort of springs eternal from the pages of the Bible. And that's the answer I'd like to focus on here. Mm -hmm. Uh, the term itself was not widely used until the 1930s, and it was used in the political context I just alluded to. Mm -hmm. The term Judeo-Christian actually refers to the ground shared by Judaism and Christianity. 
Right. And for Christians, the values and character shown by God in his relationship with the Jewish people, culminating in the life and death of his son in Jesus Christ, a relationship that has, as I said, become available to all people everywhere, not just the Jews. It is the idea that wisdom comes from an external and an eternal source rather than from our own hearts. And as Rabbi Shmuley Botich mm. said, uh, author and political commentator, uh, has said, these are the underpinning of Western civilization. More practically speaking, Jews and Christians share many of the same ethical and social values which come from the biblical scriptures since the Old Testament is shared by both faiths. Right. These values include, but are not limited to, the Ten Commandments, loving one's neighbor, giving to the poor, tithing to the local church and community, a universal responsibility for humanity, the value of historical continuity, the preservation of life, divine intervention through prayer. Mm -hmm. An incredibly important passage for both the Jewish and Christian people is in Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And in Matthew 22.36-40, Jesus is answering one of his disciples who asks, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Referencing the Jewish law. And remember, these were Jews, including Jesus. And Jesus responded with, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So this is to care about those around you and do it with the right intentions. This is one of the most difficult demands for man, but it is of the most utmost importance in Scripture and therefore central to the Judeo-Christian ethic we're discussing. It's charity, and no one's forced to do anything in Judaism or Christianity. It's charity that's done and given out of a reaction to the extraordinary things that have been done to us by God first. Right. So there's an important and obvious handshake that happens between the Old and New Testaments, and the character and virtue taught in the pages of Scripture remains consistent and evergreen, as does the nature of God in both, as we're talking about the very same God. Mm. So these virtues I'm talking about, they, they don't exist on some like crazy uh, ethereal plane. They're central to a functioning society right. as evidenced by an overwhelming availability of statistics information that prove this out in the positive and also in the negative if you look at societies that don't have these same building blocks in their DNA. Places like China and North Korea, even right. Thailand or in India, mm-hmm. where human rights are not respected. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask that just quickly, and you could get back to this. I don't want to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but like, what about uh, Hindu and um, you know moderate Islam that has mm-hmm. similar values? Is that, I mean, what do I you mean, think? you see in Islamic countries. I mean, those are scary places for women to live. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. in Africa and Russia, people simply don't have rights. Right. So when you see a, a country that is formed out of the ethics from some of these other places, you mm-hmm. definitely don't see the same harmony that you've no. seen in America uh, yeah. with the Judeo-Christian value system. Mm-hmm. So it, it speaks to a large piece of why I actually am a conservative, is because I do feel that these values that can be proven are better for the country with statistics, if you, as you've alluded to uh, many right. times, are, are the values I think should be conserved yeah, within I, our, I, our culture. I believe you've actually said that before on a podcast. I think when we did our Back to Basics podcast, you said it did track that uh, could, that republicans or conservatives were mm-hmm. religious because yeah. it's 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 sort of written in those values mm-hmm. now if the judeo-christian you know back to the judeo-christian values if the ethics yeah. are essentially the same why is the only reason that this is a christian nation and not a jewish nation 
uh, because the Christians were here first. Well, there's like no Jews anyway. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's a very small number. Right, right. So it's basically just numbers. I mean, maybe that's a silly question. Well, maybe, but I I don't know if you knew this, Riz. Did you know that two things could be true at once? I I did not know that. Tell me about it. So true thing number one, this can be a good thing for the Jews. Mm -hmm. Christians that are actually steeped in the Bible understand the importance of the Jewish people and Israel to the world, and there are a great many Zionists due to this understanding. Mm. True thing number two, this can be a bad thing for the Jews. There are also people and pastors out there who preach replacement theology, which is essentially disappearing the Old Testament and the Jewish role in the world and the Bible and teaching only the New Testament. This is a form of anti-Semitism. Right. And speaking of which, you know, we must mention the white supremacists and like-minded groups yeah. that pervert scriptures and yeah. utilize the Bible as weapons of hate and dissension both of which are antithetical to the heart of Scripture itself. But I have to believe there are probably more people that do that than Jews in this country. Yeah, you know, you sort of read my mind there. You know, I was first going to say that I've heard Orthodox Jews like like Ben Shapiro uh, talk Mm -hmm. about how America, considering itself a Christian nation, protects the rights of Jews as well. So he's very happy about that. For sure. Um, But I was going to ask, you know, why has there been so much anti-Semitism in this country? Um, and why are there so many sects of Christianity that have looked down on the Jews? And, and uh, you know, there was even, there's even been an American Nazi party that was Christian, yeah, that claimed absolutely. Christian values. So, you know, where does that come from? I mean, there's a lot to this, and there's mm-hmm. a long history of misinformation and misunderstanding, yeah. not just of scripture, but uh, translations and uh, people under, you know, buying rhetoric from someone yeah. who is a, a go-between who doesn't understand the heart of scripture, obviously. Right. Okay. And so, you know, these things get compounded on and, and they, they grow and they amass and it becomes a, a larger problem than yeah. it should be. Obviously, we've talked about before how Jews yeah. have been sort of history's punching bags for one reason yeah. or another. And uh, it's prevalent among all different races and all different societies. Mm-hmm. No matter where you go in the world, when there's a problem, it's usually the Jews. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that train is never late, as I've said many times. Indeed. Okay, so, so let's do something fun this week for our topic of the day. Uh, I'm Jewish, as you guys know by now. Uh, and my wife is, I, I, I guess you could say, culturally Christian. She's like, she's never stepped foot in a church and she grew up in a completely non-religious sort of atheist environment even more than I did. Uh, I, you know, went to synagogue a few times year and did get bar mitzvahed. Uh, but, uh, you know, of course, Christmas is very important to her and to my kids. We consider it a sort of American holiday, not a religious one. So uh, we got our Christmas tree a few days after Thanksgiving. It's the biggest one we've ever had. It's huge. All right. And uh, yeah, I, I realized as I was sitting there looking at it, embarrassingly enough, I have no idea what the significance of a Christmas tree is. So that's why I brought along my friend Jay, as usual, hey. so, <laughs> so that he could pour us some eggnog and get us buzzed on the history of the Christmas tree. Jay, buzz just because. Buzz history. Hello, and welcome to a special Christmas edition of Buzzed History. Today we're going to explore the history of that wonderful green and sparkly addition to our homes and neighborhoods, the Christmas tree. We can go back as early as the ancient Egyptians and Romans' use of the evergreen trees as symbols of the solstice, and to the 15th and 16th centuries, where rural English church records indicate that holly and ivy were bought in the winter and private houses and streets were also decorated with greenery in the same time period. The ancient Egyptians worshipped a sun god called Ra at the winter solstice. When it was said that Ra began to recover from his illness, the Egyptians filled their homes with green palm rushes, symbolizing life over death. Early Romans marked the solstice with a feast called Saturnalia in honor of Saturn, the god of agriculture, 
To mark the occasion, they decorated their homes and temples with evergreen boughs. In Northern Europe, the Druids also decorated their temples with evergreen boughs as a symbol of everlasting life, and the Vikings in Scandinavia celebrated the evergreen as the plant of their sun god, Baldr. There are many a myth surrounding the origin of Christmas trees themselves. One purports that Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation, believed that pine trees represented the goodness of God. Another tells the story of St. Boniface, who in the 8th century avoided a pagan human sacrifice under an oak tree by cutting down that tree and a fir tree grew in its place. The actual origin is rooted in what we now call Germany during the Middle Ages, where paradise plays were performed to celebrate the feast day of Adam and Eve, which fell on Christmas Eve. The tree of knowledge was represented by an evergreen fir with apples tied to its branches. The oldest Christmas tree market is thought to have been located just over the southwestern German border in Strasbourg, where Christmas trees were sold during the 17th century. The first decorated indoor tree was recorded in 1605 in Strasbourg, decorated with roses, apples, wafers, and sweets. References to Christmas trees in private homes or establishments in North America date back to the late 18th century and early 19th century, namely a pine tree in North Carolina in 1786 and in a school for the American Indians run by Moravian missionaries in 1805. However, the image of a decorated Christmas tree with presents underneath has a very specific origin. An engraving published in 1848 in the Illustrated London News depicts Queen Victoria and Prince Albert and their children gathering around a Christmas tree and eyeing unwrapped presents lying at the foot of the tree. The premier women's magazine in America at the time, called Godey's Ladies Book, reprinted the version of the image a couple of years later as the Christmas tree. It is said that this single image and Albert's transplanting of the custom to England cemented the Christmas tree in the popular consciousness. Queen Victoria was incredibly popular with her subjects, and what was done at court immediately became fashionable, not only in Britain, but with the fashion-conscious East Coast American society, like in New Britain, Riz, one of your favorite East Coast locales. Yeah. Naturally, the claim to fame that America has connected to the Christmas tree is just, well, simply bigger. We do love to take a good thing and enlarge it by a trillion times. While the Europeans used small trees, about four feet in height, the Americans liked their Christmas trees to reach, well, from floor to ceiling. In 1923, the electricity lobby pushed President Calvin Coolidge to host the first national Christmas tree at the White House as a publicity stunt for the glories of electricity, which was a 60-foot-tall balsam fir tree covered in 2,500 light bulbs, thus beginning the annual National Christmas Tree Lighting Ceremony. In 1931, a 20-foot-tall Christmas tree went up at Rockefeller Center when the building was still under construction. This tree became a symbol of hope by putting so many unemployed people back to work during the Great Depression. In December 1964, a new Christmas trend emerged. Fake trees. These trees made up about 35% of the $155 million Christmas tree business in the U.S. And 50 years later, these artificial firs dominate the industry. Of the roughly 95 million American households with Christmas trees in 2018, 82% of the trees were fake and only 18% were real. The best-selling trees are Scotch pine, Douglas fir, Fraser fir, balsam fir, and white pine, and this has been another Buzz History. Buzz History. Great job, Jay. Well, now I know. Now you know. Now you don't have to wonder, wonder no more. Yeah, we should give it just a little bit of context to the New Britain thing. Jay and I, when we were East Coasters, we were gigging and we used to drive by uh, New Britain, which is in Connecticut, I believe. And yeah, we used to right. always say, what happened to the old Britain? <laughs> yeah, in your, in your ridiculous British accent. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah. But anyway, that was really awesome, Jay. I, I actually, I, I really think 
that was your best best history ah thanks yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right guys it's been a hell of an episode and a hell of a year and i'm going to talk one minute about the good stuff that happened this year because we all know about the bad now I'm going to get personal. You know, for me, the silver lining of 2020 was really getting to spend time with my family. You know, we we lived in such a such chaotic lifestyle before the pandemic. And this whole thing has forced us to have to slow down a bit and listen to each other and uh, be with each other more, really be there, you know. And and while while doing the homeschooling thing has been really challenging and spending 24-7 with a six and an eight-year-old can drive you a little crazy at times, uh, I honestly wouldn't take a minute of it back because I think I was able to get bonding time with my kids that that I never got before the pandemic and I probably will never get again. So that's been really cool. Lastly, I really got to thank Jay here because this podcast was his brainchild. And uh, sometimes you don't tell your friends that you're not incredibly confident about their idea that they may have, uh, you know, even though you're kind of thinking it. And uh, when Jay came to me uh, with the idea of doing a political podcast, I was skeptical as to whether it would work. And I didn't tell him that. But I honestly didn't think we would uh, or we could continually find enough stuff to talk about. I, I I think I really hadn't discovered confidence yet in sharing my political opinions in a sort of long format show every week like this. Uh, but after just a few episodes, it became 100% clear to both of us that this was working and people were liking it. And what I think I still underestimated was how much it would enrich my life. Like it's 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 given me uh, an alternate purpose every week outside of family and work duties, which has been an incredible blessing in the midst of a pandemic, that's for sure. And as I've said before on the show, it really has filled that creative void for me that I don't have anymore since I don't perform music. And the best part of that for me is the feedback we receive. So thank you to everyone who has written in and told us you know, how much they enjoy the show or even scolded us when they thought we got something wrong. So, uh, and thank you to my best friend, Justin, who came up with this idea and helped bring it to life. As for what's in store in 2021, I'm making another prediction right here, Jay. All right. I three think predictions. three predictions in this episode. <laughs> I'm a real prognosticator, <laughs> but uh, I think 2021 is going to be one of the great years in American history. I really mm-hmm. do. I think we're going to see a roaring 20s kind of moment post depression. And uh, yeah, I know there's a lot of people economically hurting. I'm probably going to be one of them. I think we're all going to be in that boat mm-hmm. at a certain point next year. But I think we all keep our chins up and uh we get this vaccine running through our bloodstream and it's, it's going to be a hell of a year. That's my prediction at least. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Riz. That's great. I'm going to keep uh, my comments short because you've heard enough from me tonight, but what I will probably remember most about 2020 well, is the pandemic, but a close second will absolutely be you and I working together on this show. As insane as our country and world have been, this show along with my wife, of course, has brought me my only sanity. It's allowed us an outlet to speak our minds. And even more importantly than that, it's brought us closer to you, our listeners. It's brought us closer to a group of people that regardless of our ideologies, think in similar ways. And we appreciate moderation. We talk, we navigate through the nuance to get the best result possible, which I know we all believe to be the same thing for America to thrive, us along with it, and for us to hear each other out and discuss our ideas. That's what makes this country so wonderful. So thank you all as well for engaging with us, for your support, for giving us that opportunity. We pledge to you that we'll work harder in 2021 and we'll grow this enterprise so that with your help, there can be a bigger footprint of civil discourse in the world, a larger home for people 
who understand that no matter our differences, we can work through them. And thank you, Riz, for a 2020 that actually wasn't all bad. And yeah. not everyone gets to say that. We get to do this together. And that really continues to be such a gift for me. Uh, yeah. The sentiments you expressed are, are absolutely seconded. Right. And I'm looking forward to this next era of our country. I'm looking forward to continuing my solo plight to take back the GOP. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to the intermediary and all the great things I know we have planned for this next year. Yeah. So uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, Riz and everyone. And happy Hanukkah, by and, the Yeah, way. of course, happy Hanukkah. Last and night happy tonight. happy Hanukkah. Uh, we got a lot in store for you guys. Uh, tonight's the last night of Hanukkah, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah we have a lot in store for you guys uh, in 2021. We have a lot of things planned. We are. Some people have asked why uh, we haven't had interviews. We have some more interviews coming up. We've been we a, a little short on interviews lately, mostly because of time constraints. And, so, and uh, news quantity. And news quantity, exactly. So um, again, happy new year to everyone. We will see you in early January and uh, please have a, a great and safe holiday. Take care of yourself, take care of each other and yep. wear those damn masks. Yeah, don't do anything crazy, America. We're watching you. We are. All right, see you later. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now.